Welcome to From Rewatch with Love, a James Bond cinematic rewatch podcast. My name is Graham Stark. Joining me, as always, is Matt Wiggins. Hello. And today we are looking at 1981's For Your Eyes Only. We are now in the 80s. Oh, no. (laughs) So we were not the only people who thought that Moonraker, for all the parts that we enjoyed, might have been a touch too silly. And this is the next in a series of... James Bond course corrective movies where they tried in this instance to sort of to ground Bond. They went to space and quite literally they wanted to bring him back down to Earth and also thematically in this particular movie. (laughs) There's an argument to be made that after a certain point, all Bond movies are somewhat of a pastiche of other Bond movies. Yeah. And this one, I think more so than any other one we've looked at. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think I mentioned last episode that if you had asked me to describe what happened in this movie sort of like on a random day i couldn't have told you and it was only by nature of our sort of like bandying about oh geez what even happens in this one and then catching on like an occasional thing and i I, like i think contributing to that sort of lack of recognition is just the fact that a lot of the stuff that happens in this movie bears striking similarity to a lot of stuff that has happened in previous movies and in particular this movie strongly put me in the mind of on her majesty's secret service yeah yeah i can see it of all things there are so many visual and thematic elements that are similar to it i just when watching it i was like Wow, this is like in the same way that we sort of referred to the spy who loved me as you only live twice again. I was like, this is kind of OHMSS again. Yeah, a little bit. It's interesting that it's directed by John Glenn. It's the first Mm -hmm. one that he would fully direct. And he, of course, was the second unit director and editor on OHMSS. We talked Mm -hmm. about him quite a bit in the other one he would direct a couple other bond movies after this in fact he was second unit director on several other bond movies but this was his first first one that he directed and it's kind of interesting there are so many i mean things as superficial as a bobsled track but also just in some of the way that things are shot and paced it's just kind of like huh interesting yeah i i didn't make that connection upon watching it but i totally get what you mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it, that's interesting because Kathleen and I were watching it. And we were like, does this remind you of OHMSS? And it, it, it really did. To a certain extent, some of the set pieces, for sure, I was like, oh, that's similar. But d- 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 it didn't hit me quite the same way it has hit you. But now, like, I totally agree. Written by longtime Bond writer Richard Maybaum and co-written by new addition to the writing team, Michael G. Wilson, who is cubby broccoli's stepson who is still today producing the bond movies this is the first one that he actually had a writing credit on though they say frequently that these movies were always very collaborative but basically richard maybaum and john glenn and michael wilson in his capacity as an assistant producer were throwing around ideas and then maybaum was like hey uh, let's write this one together and they did a lot of the plot elements 
are from two short stories from the For Your Eyes Only short story collection. Ah. It's funny, after Casino Royale came out, I had read some sort of piece of trivia that there were only three Ian Fleming penned James Bond novels and or short stories that had not had their name used as the name of a full Bond film. And they were Risico, The Hildebrand Rarity, and Quantum of Solace. Right. And so upon reading that, everybody was like, well, those are all terrible names and we'll never use any of those. <laughs> so I don't know. Look out for the Hildebrand rarity, I guess. <laughs> Bond 26. Yeah. Budget of $28 million or $79.8 million in today's money made a whopping $195 million in its day or adjusted for inflation, $555 million. So it was a financial success. Bit of a contraction from the last one, though. Definitely. But I think this was better received critically. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. I can't think of anything else to discuss before we get into it. So I guess let's get into it. Let's get into it. So I mentioned on Her Majesty's Secret Service and the movie opens with Bond arriving at a church graveyard to leave a bouquet of roses on the grave of Teresa, a.k.a. Tracy Bond. 1943 to 1969, the year that OHMSS came out. Mm -hmm. As it says on the gravestone, beloved wife of James Bond, we have all the time in the world. W what an odd moment to invoke continuity. Right? What a strange thing to bring up in 1981, the movie from 1969 with George Lazenby. It's just it just seems like such a such a strange choice. Yeah, it's like it's not even like it's an anniversary because it's been what 22 years since that movie came out at this point. Yeah, very strange. It's a strange one. This whole this whole opening is a little weird, but <laughs> We'll get to that. So as Bond is placing the bouquet on the grave, the priest from the church runs over and is just like, sir, the people from your company have called. They require you immediately. They're sending a helicopter. A helicopter arrives. Bond goes and gets in. It's a universal exports helicopter. He closes the door just as the helicopter is lifting off. He looks over and sees the priest giving the signs of the cross. <laughs> that that troubles him slightly. But, you know, it's a relatively normal helicopter ride clearly M has summoned him for one thing or another and then we cut to a white cat mm -hmm. with a diamond collar being stroked by a hand in a gray suit so that man is sitting in a wheelchair wearing a neck brace and the wheelchair has this enormous computer console in front of it that looks mysteriously like a set of flight instruments and he flips a switch on the console and a video feed of the pilot of the helicopter appears and he starts pressing some buttons and then then we cut back to the helicopter nothing remarkable to take place and then the hand presses a switch electrifying the headset of the pilot who falls dead and the helicopter goes into a dive over the Thames. <laughs> so, okay. The villain in the wheelchair obviously intended to be Blofeld. Yeah. But isn't Blofeld for legal reasons. This is <laughs> this is legally distinct Blofeld. <laughs> 
And basically, I mean, look, there are some very cool aerial work. There's a fun thing with like a, they put a miniature in the foreground to make it look like the helicopter was flying into a very cramped space in the building. I don't know if there's anything particular you feel you need to call out from this sequence. No. What ends up happening is Bond through climbing out the helicopter and then back in and getting control of the helicopter and unplugging the remote thing, picks up this man on the pontoon. What are they called? The the strut. I, I would just call it the strut. I, I don't know what it's called. Yeah, he picks up the wheelchair on the strut of the helicopter and dumps this wheelchair bound, not Blofeld, into an enormous smokestack. We believe, and canonically, I guess, killing him. Yes. And this entire thing was basically just to essentially dick wave at Kevin McClory that <laughs> James Bond doesn't need Blofeld. Right. Because that legal fracas was still ongoing and they yeah. had wanted to have Blofeld come back and you know but then Kevin McClory said that they couldn't and it became a whole a whole thing and then they were just like okay you know what we're gonna do this needlessly expensive but legally safe dunk on your character so that we can just close that out and move on so 22 years later Bond gets his revenge on Blofeld for murdering Tracy right it's wild. It's so strange. Part of me wonders, and I, I actually have now like Googled the production timeline because I was curious. Part of me wondered if this was actually a direct reaction to the green lighting and beginning on Never Say Never Again. Which was around that time. Yes, but filming didn't begin for Never Say Never Again until late 1982. So given production timeline of this to get it into theaters for 1981 they would have been still about a year ahead so it probably was just like legal fallout at this point in time or they might have been sort of hearing murmurs about a project in the works there wouldn't have been much mm -hmm. at this point in time fun fact the man in the wheelchair john hollis is the body who is an actor who exists uh, he had an uncredited role in 1967's casino royale uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> Yet another connection. Speaking of bald people, he played Lobot in Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yeah. Lando Calrissian's friend with the yeah. wraparound headpiece. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. But the character is voiced by Robert Rietti, who dubbed the voice of Largo in Thunderball. Really? Yeah. It's just kind of a funny, a further yet funny connection about like, it's literally the bad guy from Thunderball. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And like that's this this goes on for several minutes. There's a lot of, it, you know, it's cool helicopter stunts and everything. But that is the pre-title sequence. Yeah, there's really not much to talk about in this one. It, it is just straightforwardly this one action sequence. And then and then he dunks not Blofeld. Mm -hmm. I guess he dunks the cat, too. Doesn't the cat jump off? Does the cat jump off? Maybe the cat gets away. I think. Yeah, the cat gets away. All right. The cat lives. There's a brief insert shot of the cat jumping away. So Bond has saved the cat. Bond 26. The cat returns to exact <laughs> revenge. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even like Blofeld's back in the continuity now. It doesn't, you know, nothing makes sense. You anyway, what they say about revenge, Graham. You'd better dig 10 graves. 10? Ten? <laughs> Yeah, cats have nine lives. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I walked headlong into that, too. Holy crap. <laughs> so the opening titles, we have the song For Your Eyes Only, as performed by Sheena Easton, who herself is featured in the opening title sequence, which is a first. And only? Is this the only time? 
that the it might be singer slash performer has appeared in the opening titles certainly to this point but i can't remember anything forward of this it's pretty cool honestly it really spices up the usual maurice binder fare to mm-hmm. have her there singing it which yes. is cool i like i like from the the visuals of the opening titles it's it's nice to have her there the track itself for your eyes only it's i mean it's high on my personal list of the ballads i was actually going to qualify it maybe as a belter because she is really giving it she is but i noticed while watching it i was just sort of like she has such her voice does not have the commanding presence of someone like shirley bassey it's not a bad voice it's a very good voice but it's small yeah and she, she has a little bit of strange enunciation in places as well. Mm. Only for you. But it's it's a good song. I like the song. It's very 80s. It definitely has more presence than Moonraker. Like, just as a song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little more energetic. I like that we are now transitioning to, like, a little more sort of modern backing tracks. You know, more present percussion, more present... Uh, you know, like some some electronic music in there, just giving some body to the music. Yeah. I like all of those things about this song. I do like that when they get other artists, they obviously work with the artists, but when they get sort of known artists to entirely do one themselves, when it's like, you know, we're going to get Wings or Paul McCartney to do one, or, you know, when we're yeah. going to get Chris Cornell to record one, you know, that there's still orchestral elements in the song, even if it is a pop song or a rock song, there are there are orchestral elements in it that make it still sound like James Bond. Mm-hmm. I really like that. This was a successful single as well for Your Eyes Only with Sheena Easton. Oh. Did did well on the charts. I mean, it is, as you say, it's very 1980s and it, it was successful at the time. It was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe. Nice. Oh, in fact, the notes here, I'm sorry, say Easton also made Bond film history as the first and to date only artist to perform the theme song during the opening title sequence. There we go. They originally had approached Blondie to do a theme song. The band made a song called For Your Eyes Only, which they submitted to the producers and the producers were like, "Uh, well, thanks, I guess. But no, no, we wanted you to perform this song that Bill Conti wrote. And they were like, oh, (laughs) no, no, we're not going to do that. So then they asked Cheney Easton to come and sing the song that Bill Conti had written, which is the song that we hear. Blondie's version, which I have not heard, is on their 1982 album, The Hunter. Oh, Nice. That's not dissimilar. It's a little dissimilar, but it's not totally dissimilar from what happened with Spectre, where Radiohead was commissioned to write a song for Spectre. And they did, and they released it because their song was rejected and it went to Sam Smith. Some very interesting decisions of who who they tap for these. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been some interesting decisions so far, and there's going to be some even more interesting decisions, but... Apparently, because of how they were filming some of the very deep close-ups of Sheena Easton, any, like, imperceptible head movement on her part made the image blurry. So they put her head in a steel clamp. <laughs> they, they they hid the clamp tongs in her hair right. with the support running down the back of her neck. <laughs> Sheena Easton recalls, quote, it was the most painful thing I've ever worn, <laughs> but, but he got my face in 70 millimeter. Oh, there we go. Yeah. 
uh, the things we do for our art, right? Mm-hmm. The I mean, that's the opening title sequence. There's honestly, I, I would say, not a huge amount to write home about. Yeah, I, like I think the inclusion of Sheena Easton is cool. The song is cool. Maurice Binder is doing his most derivative work here. Otherwise, the rest of it is completely unremarkable. I, I completely agree with that. And I'm sure there's I'm positive I recognize some of these silhouettes from before. So the one thing I noticed in this one actually is I don't think you do if only because the matting on them is way way better that's true they might have improved that there are also some shots that are not silhouette that are just like a woman in deep shadow of like true you know you almost see nipple (laughs) which i think i think that's maurice binder's brand really a little bit you almost see nipple Mm-hmm. I quite enjoy this. We cut with a shot of water. It's the, like there's a watery transition to the camera surfacing out of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And we see a boat. It's like a really scungy looking fishing trawler. There's dudes on it with jeans. It's called the St. George's. They're like hauling nets up on board. But there's this guy on the deck on a smoke break wearing like a naval sweater. He looks sort of out of place with everyone else in their enormous hip waders and the rusted deck awash with fish. And we follow him down into the below decks, goes through an enormous walk-in freezer where, of course, they flash freeze the fish. And he goes through a door on the far side of the freezer, which then slides into the wall. And he then appears into this gleaming, clean, amazing, high-tech, below-deck British intelligence naval ship. It's so good. I want to know where they're keeping this. <laughs> the ship is not that big. Like the the interior volume of this set is equivalent to the interior volume of the entire ship. Maybe it's like a iceberg where it's there's more of it underwater. <laughs> it's just like 12 stories deep. Yeah. I really like this by the way. I I want to say that again unlike Moonraker which I mentioned apart from a couple cool shots of miniatures and stuff was filmed fairly straightforwardly. One of the other things that put me in mind of OHMSS was the that this movie is shot again much more interestingly there's a lot more dynamic camera interesting angles uh, this is not so workmanly shot i should have mentioned the cinematographer alan hume what else has alan hume done alan hume has done um, a variety of things probably the biggest thing that people would know would be a little thing called star wars episode 6 return of the jedi maybe you've heard of it try it yourself that's probably the biggest thing, but I mean, a lot of things all through the 60s. Amusingly, a lot of the Carry On movies, I don't know if you personally have a frame of reference for that, but the Carry On movies were like a series of very farcical body comedies that they just churned out in the UK. And some of them are very funny and some of them are dire, <laughs> but they just they just kept making Carry On movies until... I don't know, uh, presumably some sort of royal order from the queen was like, seriously, stop that. (laughs) Uh, He was also cinematographer on 10 episodes of The Avengers. Ah. Yeah. So there you go. And that makes sense. We've established at this point that there are like six people that work in British film and television. So (laughs) basically, yeah. He would also go on to be director of photography for Octopussy and A View to a Kill. Oh, and A Fish Called Wanda. Interesting. Anyway, so this man that we've just seen taking a smoke break wanders through this amazing technology, shiny steel intelligence ship, and he shows up for his shift, which involves being handcuffed to the terminal. So he exchanges handcuffs with the man whose shift he is spelling off and sits down in front of this machine, the ATAC 
A-T-A-C. Looks like an enormous calculator. <laughs> the movie never gives us a good justification for why this dude needs to be handcuffed to the ATAC machine. Because he's not handcuffed to the machine. He's handcuffed to the console that the machine is attached to. And as we will later determine, the ATAC can be removed from that console. But... They never use, I basically am just frustrated because they never use the handcuffs for anything, right? Like there's the whole, like you get handcuffed to the nuclear codes that are in your, in your suitcase so that nobody can steal the suitcase from you. But this just looks like the dude is chained to his workstation for no good reason. And I guess the implication is that so that he has to self-destruct it before he runs away, but that doesn't help him in this case. It just basically dooms him if the ship goes down, but he is also not the only person doomed by the ship going down because everybody dies so like what is the purpose of this is it just to make it seem extra special and prestigious quote unquote like as a posting why is he chained to the console i don't understand my supposition is that it's just shorthand to tell the audience like this is really effing important yes but i agree with you if you think about it in in the universe of the thing <laughs> he's already in the room that you apparently have to like clear entering and leaving yeah so i don't know yeah i agree with you <laughs> They see something pop up on their radar and they're like, holy crap, what is that? Some sort of object is coming towards the boat. I don't know how they didn't see it sooner, but the fishermen have caught a mine in the net and are reeling it in. And the guy on top of the boat is like, stop reeling the thing in. And they're like, what? And it hits the boat and explodes and just causes this absolutely catastrophic cascade failure of every single thing on the boat. And realizing that there's something very bad happening, the technician that we've just seen handcuffed after the thing tries to destruct this machine he brings up like a super auto destruct device there's with a big hand lever but he's being buffeted around sprayed with water and cannot reach the thing to destroy the machine whatever it may be it's the MacGuffin. it's the lector it's the whatever the other one was it's the device that goes ping and yes. it's currently somewhere under the water so we cut to the ministry of defense where we see frederick gray who we've seen many times we mentioned he'd be in a bunch of these played by jeffrey Keane again and a couple men come in and tell him that the ATAC machine has been lost and that he needs to get on it. And they explain basically what the, or no, they don't even explain in this scene what the ATAC is. That's for Bond to do later in one of his amazing mm -hmm. sequences of knowing way too much about everything. So then we cut to Moscow and we see General Gogol again being inappropriate with his secretary as he is in basically every scene. And he's on the phone receiving word that someone's going to sell him an ATAC. I think he gets on the phone and, and basically is like delivering the message that like, We've got information that, that this has been lost. The British have lost it. We're not going to make a play at it. But if it should come on the market, we'd be thrilled to purchase it from you. And we don't know who he's talking to. And then we cut to a seaplane flying in the air above some islands near Greece or near Albania, somewhere in the Mediterranean. And in the plane is the pilot and his only passenger, Melina Havelock played by Carol Bouquet, who is being flown to her parents' boat to visit them. Her parents are archaeologists. They do underwater archaeology work, and they have a big boat that they work out of, and this is where it happens to be right now because they found some really cool underwater temple that they're doing stuff with. We see her dad in his office sort of looking at some maps. He has a parrot named Max, who does the very traditional parrot stuff of, you know, like, give us a kiss. He also has a, a photograph, a framed photograph of Melina, his daughter, scowling. <laughs> 
she's very intense like her her she's just got a very intense look she's amazing like yes it is an intense look but she's a a striking actress the seaplane sets down she gets out waves to all the crew because she knows all of them because they're all friends because you know she's mom and dad's little girl who's grown up on this boat basically and she mm-hmm arrives bringing all sorts of lovely presents for them including a bunch of pistachios for max and so she goes inside to give the pistachios to the parrot says that she'll be hanging out for a few days to help them out with the work they're doing on the temple and the seaplane comes back and starts flying towards the boat and they're like oh look the seaplane guy's coming back to sort of you know wave goodbye let's wave back to the seaplane and they do wave back to the seaplane and the seaplane gets closer and closer and doesn't seem to be pulling away and as it gets as close as it needs to it opens fire (laughs) it waves with bullets yeah just destroys i mean not only a bunch of stuff on the deck but also melina's parents she manages to sort of dodge behind a wall Mm -hmm. and protect herself but both of them are, are like fully riddled with bullets and the camera like zooms in right on her eyes. It's really like that is the face of someone who's going to kill a man. Yeah. <laughs> and then we cut to MI6. It's, we're, we're a fair swack into the movie. There's been a lot of setup. But it's all moved at a good clip. Oh, definitely. After the opening title sequence, the like everything moves at a good clip here. Mm-hmm. The, the pacing is great. It moves you, sweeps you right along. I'll say right now for a movie that I didn't remember much of before rewatching it. This is solid. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really good one, honestly. I remember last week when I was like, maybe this movie rules. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, maybe this movie's excellent. <laughs> we see Money Penny leaving M's office and she checks her watch and realizes that Bond will be arriving soon, so she spruces up her lipstick a little bit and we see reflected in the background of her mirror the hat throw. Mm-hmm. Which hasn't happened since OHMSS. <laughs> Which is especially amusing since at no point does Roger Moore's James Bond wear a hat. (laughs) Even in this movie. Never. (laughs) Yeah, where'd the hat come from? Yeah. He's like, I just found this outside. It doesn't even seem like it would go with the suit he's wearing. (laughs) Yeah. Can we comment briefly on Moneypenny's entire filing cabinet drawer dedicated to this makeup kit that like on a spring loaded platform rises out of the filing cabinet and springs up the mirror? I like that she has gadgets, too. Yes. You know, she got that from Q Branch. Oh, yeah, definitely. I want to hear your opinion on Bond's suit in this scene, which is not double breasted, but is a three piece. I I like it. This is a good suit. I think the fact that the hat wouldn't match is not a big deal because he's got a sort of like tan colored overcoat. Uh, That's true. The slightly brown hat with the tan colored overcoat and the blue pinstripe suit. I think it works. I I think the whole thing works. It's a little earth tone for me, but Mm. whatever. It's a nice suit. I like it. One of my least unfavorite (laughs) Roger Moore suits. Excellent. He gives Moneypenny a flower and goes into M's office where he finds Bill Tanner, MI6 chief of staff. Because, of course, as we mentioned, Bernard Lee passed away, fell very ill, like tried to make a go of being in the movie and it just wasn't feasible. And Cubby didn't want to recast him, certainly not 
so quick to the mark and had Bill Tanner, the character, fill that role along with Frederick Gray. They included a line as well that that M was just on leave. Yes. This is the second time we've seen the character of Bill Tanner. The first time was in The Man with the Golden Gun, uncredited, being played by Michael Goodliffe. He would show up again in GoldenEye and The World is Not Enough, played by Michael Kitchen. Oh. Also in most of the Daniel Craig movies, played by Rory Kinnear. Oh, yeah. The character is in all the Craig Bond films except for Casino Royale. Interesting. Yeah. I will keep my eye out for him when we get there. I I had not realized this was a recurring character because he's sort of like a secondary character and only shows up from time to time. So he's not one of the ones. And of course, it's been recast multiple times. So it's not one of the ones that like sticks with you as being a recurrent role. Yeah. uh, The actor James Villiers hoped that he would sort of become M or like the M role or take or just become actually M as the series progressed. But the producers wanted an older actor for for that character. Interesting. I I could have seen it. You can see it a little bit in the the way he's playing the role, too. Mm. But he's such a dick to Bond. (laughs) He is, too. He seems to be playing it older than he necessarily is. But yes. So he's there. Frederick Gray is there. And they do the thing that I mentioned where they're like, so what do you know about the ATAC? And he's like, ATAC? Oh, I don't think I know anything about the ATAC. Only everything about the ATAC. (laughs) So he explains what it is. And it's essentially, it stands for Automatic targeting attack communicator Mm -hmm. and it's used by the ministry of defense to coordinate the navy with the polaris submarines which are the nuclear submarines so if the ATAC fell into the wrong hands, then anybody could use it to tell the British naval missiles where to fire, which seems like a colossal security risk. I guess that's why yeah. the guy was handcuffed to it and why there was a self-destruct thing. But I mean, it's just like, can't you just tell all your submarines? Hey, uh, it's time to change your password. Yeah. <laughs> Set ATACs to Paradigm 2. Yeah, like, come on. But no, Bond has to find out where it is and get the ATAC back. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. We find out in this scene, MI6 had already contacted the Havelocks to do some reconnaissance work under the auspices of doing archaeology work on this temple and that they had found the site of the wreck. Uh, yeah, that that's exactly what happens because the whole mission that Bond is sent on here is to go after the hitman and try and figure out like they identified the pilot so he's got to go find out who is behind it Hmm. and they do so by handing him a a dossier wrapped in a piece of paper that says for your eyes only (gasps) we got the name of the movie it's the name drop so then we cut to bond driving a lotus the lotus is back the lotus is back yeah i forgot that they brought the lotus back i did too i thought it was only in the spy who loved me and it's because it gets a color change in this movie but not yet no also now i'm I'm gonna do my trademark jump ahead okay there's a scene later on where bond is driving the lotus and they have the ski rack attachment on the back hatch (laughs) and it's got skis it is so goofy (laughs) They open the hatchback and the skis like bounce off the roof of the car. (laughs) (sighs) This is not a sports utility vehicle, folks. It's a Lotus Esprit. Specifically, this is a Lotus Esprit Turbo. That's why it says Turbo on the side. Yeah. So he's driving around Spain because that's where this guy was spotted. There's a funny shot of him like pausing in an intersection to pull up a map. It's just kind of funny (laughs) that it's like even James Bond needs to refer to the map sometimes. Yeah. He drives past the entrance to a compound and there's cameras outside it. And after he passes by, we see a 
another man driven inside the compound. Bond parks his car because he's driven way past it into like the hills. This is a very rural area. So he parks his car and just sort of wanders into the woods to try and get eyes on the compound from a different vantage point. He approaches the compound and he's like sneaking around just sort of off the property. The scene like sort of cuts away from Bond and cuts to the compound. There's basically like a pool party happening and lots of people dancing to music and everybody's in swimsuits and whatnot. And there's music playing in the background. And I, I have taken to watching movies with subtitles on recently. Oh, and the the music is subtitled on the Blu-ray. This song is lewd. <laughs> this song is like remarkably lewd. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, because it just sort of fades in. It's like it's just setting the scene. This song is really about having sex. <laughs> Like, not even a little bit. Not even a little bit, yeah. Anyhow, Bond sneaks around. He's, he's watching this. And, and at the party, the man who was driven in, he's wearing a gray suit. He's got quite a... He looks quite out of place here. Mm. You know, he's wearing glasses and he's got sort of a, a blonde bob of hair on his head. He's wearing a gray suit among all these people in, in bikinis and, and bathing suits. And he walks over to the pilot of the seaplane and delivers him a briefcase full of money the pilot opens it up and he looks at looks at the the money and he bristles a pile of cash and then tosses it to a couple of women who are sitting behind him and then closes the briefcase and it's like all right cool everything's good while this is going on bond is watching from the woods as he's as he's sort of watching all this take place he hears a branch snap behind him so he wheels around and sees like a figure walking through the woods and he he goes to pursue the person that he sees in the woods and just as he does that he is jumped by some guards they disarm him and have him at gunpoint and so he has to surrender to them and they bring him up to the pool area where the assassin just sort of looks at him looks at his gun the the assassin knows his stuff he's like oh walther ppk standard mi6 issue by the way the movies need to decide if the ppk is standard issue for all mi6 agents or if James Bond is the only man we know who uses a PPK. <laughs> Do they, though? <laughs> they seem to vacillate wildly between them. Yeah, w whatever matters for the plot, right? Yeah. Anyway, so he just goes, oh, OK, cool. Kill him. Yeah, like this guy has it all figured out. He's like, yeah, OK, go, go kill him. And then they, they're like, all right. So they take him away to kill him. And he goes back to playing in the pool and he walks up to the diving board, does a little dive, jumps in the pool and then doesn't move he does like a bit of a yeah. belly flop too and then people realize that he has an arrow sticking out of him and is dead <laughs> like you you do hear a little whoot. the audio mix or the audio editing i guess on that particular sequence is actually really good because he goes up to the like he goes onto the diving board and he like springs the diving board you hear the of the like arrow flying through the air as he springs that like it mixes in with the sound effect it's really good i like it it makes it completely believable that nobody around would have realized what happened until he floats to the surface like a dead fish with an arrow in his back yeah so the distraction allows Bond to fight the guards and he grabs a pool umbrella and uses it like a staff to fight a couple guards as well. The man with the blonde hair who dropped off the money and his associate are sitting sort of watching this and the associate, the sort of the muscle for this guy who showed up to pay the assassin off, starts to get up. The guy himself, I'll just say the character's name is Locke. Emil Leopold Locke is the man with the glasses and the, mm -hmm. the bob of hair who looks very out of place. Locke gestures, no, 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 
sit sit down <laughs> just sort of like he's he's just kind of like let's just see how this plays out he, nothing in the face he's just like Mm-mm. so bond does some fighting runs back into the woods uses the pool umbrella to slow his descent as he <laughs> leaps off the wall <laughs> definitely would never work it might work just just exactly under those circumstances. It might work just well enough. That's true. Runs away under pursuit of men with guns in the woods, eventually runs into Melina. In fact, he runs into a clearing and she has a crossbow trained on him and then she shoots the man behind him. Yeah, presumably she saw everything take place. She's like, what's going on? And Bond just grabs her and they, they run off because they're now running away. <laughs> we cut to a shot back at the Lotus of the big sign that says burglar protected on one of the windows. It's like a little <laughs> sticker on the window, you know, like don't break into this car. There's a anti-theft system. And there's a couple of the goons are sort of looking at it. One of them is like, all right, well, I'm just going to break into this car. So he sort of gets his gun and uses the butt of it to smash the window, at which point the car explodes. <laughs> <laughs> Just in an enormous fireball. Just destroying that man. By the way, that <laughs> that stuntman or that actor was is one of the stuntmen. That's that's Bob Simmons, who all you know, all the way back to Doctor No as Connery's stunt double. Right. Who's, you know, still with the series in 1981. So Bond sees this and is just sort of like, oh, and chucks his keys into the bushes and it's like, well, I hope you have a car. <laughs> and she's like, I do. It's over here. So they run to her car, which is it's a yellow Citroen, I think. It's a Citroen. It's and like a real beater, too. It's not it does not start this scene in a, in great shape. No, it's a classic, too. It's the Citroen 2 CV, right? Like this is when you think of a Citroen. This is this is the car, right? Like this is the yeah. the 2 CV because it has two horsepower. <laughs> The, the deux chevaux, right? It's it's two horses. Yeah, there's a great little musical hit when Bond spots the car. Mm. It's just like this off-tuned accordion sound going... <laughs> <laughs> so they get into the Citroen. They start hauling ass away from the bad guys. As, as it... fast as the little car will carry them. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, this is a very fun car chase. Oh, yeah. This is very well done and well shot, and it's it's super fun. So he's like, what, what's, what, what happened back there? She's like, that man killed my parents. And he's like, oh, okay. I, I had sort of been hoping to figure out who was paying him, but that's also cool. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's, he's not like upset or anything. He's like, okay, cool. Well, let's stay alive. Yeah, just sort of sussing out the lay of the land. Yeah. And of course, he's in the passenger seat for all this. He, mm-hmm. he He's not driving. So he's looking a little bit nervous, nervous about how this is all going to play out. Yeah. They drive through a small village. This was actually shot in Greece, by the way. And the car flips over like rolls completely onto its top because of a weird street. But the pursuing vehicles get blocked in by a bus that's bound for Madrid. And so the people in the cars and the bus drivers just start getting into this yelling match (laughs) while (laughs) all of the locals help Bond and Molina flip the car back up (laughs) because it's a Citroen. So it weighs like nothing. Right. And he's like, do you mind if I drive? I'm just, I'm going to drive. And they take off just as the pursuing vehicles get sick of waiting, fire a gun in the air. And the bus driver is finally like, OK, OK, all right, fine. I'll back up. <laughs> so angry. <laughs> so with a push start from all of the attending farmers, they're off and running again, passing through these amazing mountain switchbacks in the middle mm-hmm. of 
an olive farm. It's so good. We get a great helicopter shot of the switchback so mm. that you can see just like the lay of the land. It gives you the geography of the scene, which is awesome. They get into a like a jockeying for position match and and the, like a car pulls up next to them and they're sort of like batting each other back and forth along the road until the car fully knocks them off the road and the Citroen somersaults down the embankment, but happens to land on a lower switchback still upright, but facing the wrong way. Bond throws it in reverse, may reverse down the switchback, still maintaining their lead until they get to the next corner and and he's able to do like a sweet like skidding stunt turn to write it back forward and yeah they're like some really awesome driving by nature of the fact that they're driving a vibrantly like canary yellow citroen against two black sedans it's really easy to see who's whom and who you're rooting for yeah yeah there's just like a lot of fun stunt driving a lot of good just car action eventually they cause one of the pursuing cars to flip over and roll down a hill and then it ends up on a lower switchback but upside down so then the citroen <laughs> just starts driving straight down through between the trees running into olive nets and throwing olives all over the place even to the point of jumping over one of the pursuing cars and then eventually the other vehicle gets so distracted by that that they jump off one of the switchbacks and land in a tree <laughs> causing this rain of olives over all the the harvesters working down below they get stuck in the tree and the camera pans down and we see this the citroen like sort of bouncing its way over the grass back down onto the road at which point it just sort of like turns onto the road and trundles on its way mm -hmm. Back in, I don't know who's, I think this is Melina's hotel room, but it doesn't really matter. Bond's like, great, let's get out of here. <laughs> let's be not here anymore. <laughs> and then we cut back to, it's not MI6, it's the Ministry of Defense, Frederick Gray's office, where Bond is presenting his report to Bill Tanner and Frederick Gray. And they're like, we wanted you to go and get information, not let the guy die. So way to fail, idiot. <laughs> and... <laughs> And Bond says, if you will look at that other page in my report, you'll see that I mentioned. Uh, what is he actually talking about here? He's talking about. I think he said you'll see that he was paid by an associate, right? Like we have a lead. And uh, if we can identify who that guy is. Oh, right. Yes. The, the trail won't go cold. Tanner, I think, is like, all right, well, get down to Q Branch and use the. Uh, God, what do they call it? The identigraph or rather the identigraph. Yes, I love that it's just said like it's a, you know, well, you get down there and use the identigraph. And Bond's like, all right, I know exactly what that is. So then we get the scene in Q Division. I like this. Bond walks in and there's a man wearing a cast and he's like, oh, how's the arm? And the guy's like, oh, fine. And then the cast just swings open and decapitates a mannequin. <laughs> I think on the whole, this Q branch scene is not their best one, but the, the little gadgets they're working on are fun. There's one and like a mannequin sitting there with an umbrella. Just one of Q's associates walks up a stepladder with a watering can, pours water onto the umbrella and these giant like spikes come out of the end of the umbrella and the umbrella closes on the person using it. Ridiculous. It's very silly. We also see them tuning up a red Lotus Esprit Turbo in the background which would be Bond's car for later in the movie. So then they enter the identigraph room. Bond loads this amazing, like, massive cartridge. It's this tape cartridge into this huge machine. I love that this is run by magnetic tape and rolls and rolls and rolls of magnetic tape. The The cabinet in the background has got got to have, like, 40 or 50 spools of this stuff. I guess the implication is that every feature 
so like the the long and the short of how this machine works is it's just like bond tells q what the guy looks like and q programs the features of the guy to create a computer image of the person that they are looking for so that they can compare it against known persons like a known person's database and identify who it is the implication here i think is that basically each of these spools of tape is like one major feature or like a handful like this scene obviously is truncated it's like a minute or two of screen time but it clearly takes them hours yeah and i wanted to talk about that actually so these tapes these like massive tape cartridges were a real thing and could hold about a megabyte of information yeah that sounds about right which which must have been astronomical in those days 1981 he sits down and they start to describe you know he's like eyes closer together a little narrower different haircut essentially the version of a of a police sketch and then we cut to as you say later one of the other members of q division for whatever reason brings in like tea for both of them with her like amazing 1980s Farrah Fawcett hair (laughs) and the rest of the office is dark out there and Q says to her oh you go on you can you can you can go home I'll lock up like he's running a model train shop right (laughs) it's like (laughs) what do you mean lock this is this is research and development this is the Q division of MI6 how is there not 24-7 armed guards? Yeah. Right? Like, what the, the, the manner in which Q is like, oh, you can go on, I'll lock up, is so casual. Yeah. Like he's, yeah, running a bookshop. Like, it, it's, it's, it's <laughs> so silly. <sighs> but at the end of it, we do see a very impressive, for the era, wireframe computer image of the man that Bond saw, which is, he's very good to have committed that to memory. Mm-hmm. And they do a computer printout and the computer says, ah, yes, this is Emil Leopold Locke. He's a known killer and now we have a lead. In fact, there's a whole biography. Let me see if I, I'll just read it off here. He was an enforcer in the Brussels underworld. He was convicted for several murders, bracket brutal. <laughs> he was sentenced to life in prison. He escaped by strangling his psychiatrist. He worked with drug syndicates in Marseille and Hong Kong. And they believe he was possibly involved in Greek smuggling and was last seen in Cortina. So Bond's going to go to Cortina. So then we see the Lotus with his <laughs> ski rack in Cortina. You know, I never noticed that. The thing with the skis. Isn't it silly? <laughs> that is really silly. There's the cut where he's like stopped and he's gotten out of the car and he's walking into the shop and he sort of like bumps into a guy on his way by. If you just focus on the Lotus in the background, you will see the skis hit the roof of the car. And like... If you're not a skier, you may not know. Skis have blades on them. Really? Yeah, I mean, they're like blades, right? Like the edges of your ski are metal. They're sharpened metal. That's how you edge on like ice, right? You need to have a hard edge that you can dig in in slick conditions. And and so like there there is a hardened steel edge on the sides of your, your skis. And like it's probably fine. Because, like, the bottom of your skis are, are wax and plastic, typically, or fiberglass. But if I am driving a sexy new 1981 Lotus Esprit Turbo, I'm probably not going to be okay with just, like, smacking my skis on the roof of that thing. Bond doesn't care. Bond is too cool to care. But I, personally, I care. No, I... <laughs> I can tell. And yeah, no, I think that's I I totally get it. I was so it's very silly. I was so distracted by the guy being weird at Bond, which we'll find out like very soon is actually Bond's contact here. Mm -hmm. But like he brushes past a guy who's like looks really suspicious. 
<laughs> he does look really suspicious. It's, it's a weirdly needless fake out. Anyway, Bond gets taken to his room, wherein there is a fruit basket, which I comment on only because it's just kind of funny that there's a fruit basket. <laughs> there's a balcony overlooking the, the view, and he goes in to have a shower, and the bathroom fogs up, and there's a note on the mirror that someone's done the thing where like they write on the mirror so that it doesn't fog up the same, and it says, Tofana, 10 a.m. So apparently that guy was just in his room, I guess. Yeah. I want to comment on this hotel. Please. James Bond, known for exotic locales. The fantasy of James Bond, as we have discussed, he stays only at the finest hotels, drinks only of the finest wines and brandies and whiskeys. He lives an exotic life where he wants for nothing and all of his highest tastes are catered to every day. Then he walks into this bathroom and there's an olive green, like, enamel countertop. <laughs> It's the Alps. Every hotel. It's the every every hotel in like a skiing place looks like this. No. I mean, maybe in the Alps in 1981. This this offends my modern sensibilities. This is a $30 a night hotel. I've stayed in a $30 a night motel like this. Fair. Anyhow, I'm joshing, but it's. uh <laughs> The, the countertop is so ugly. It takes me out of the whole thing. It's it's just hideous. Very of its time. I hate it. Moving on. <laughs> so Bond goes to Tofana, which is a mountain with an amazing view. Absolutely astonishing mm -hmm. view. And this man comes up to him and they exchange spy code words, which we haven't seen since like from Russia with love, I think. <laughs> and this man is indeed Bond's contact here. Luigi Ferrara. Yeah, his name is Luigi. Yes, played by John Marino, who played a bunch of stuff. He was in The Return of the Saint. Oh, yeah. All right, so we got a crossover with the Saint going mm -hmm. beyond the obvious one. Yeah, he's arranged to put Bond in touch with a man he knows locally named Christatos, Aristotle Christatos, who is, you know, he's a businessman. He has had dabblings in the underworld and will be aware of the movements of Locke. We then cut to Christatos, who is watching a figure skater practice at an amazing, like, exterior skating rink. It's just really cool architecturally. And so Luigi comes up to Christatos and they say hi, and then he introduces him to Bond. So this is Aristotle Christatos as played by Julian Glover himself, one of the many people who at times was potentially in line to have a crack at playing James Bond. I can see it, you know, 10, 20 years earlier than this. Mm -hmm. He's had many roles on British television in things like The Avengers, The Saint, mm -hmm. Remington Steel. Ah, yes. And weirdly, I guess this is just what today is like. He also played General Veers in The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, all right. So it's just Star Wars o'clock here on from rewatch with love oh just you wait till later i got a great one <laughs> but yeah he sits down with bond and so the figure skater that he's watching is bb doll played by lynn holly johnson who is an ice skating prodigy whom he is sponsoring signs point to she's going to be a medal contender at the next olympics and indeed the actress did do some amount of figure skating in her youth which should be fairly obvious considering that she's doing all her own skating so christados confides in bond that the man Emil Leopold Locke, a.k.a. The Dove, is an associate of a man named Columbo, who is a criminal mastermind 
smuggler head of a crime syndicate basically it's funny because we actually we, we see a cut of the dove watching this happen right that this is the first confirmation we've had that he's there <laughs> And now we know that he's aware <laughs> that Bond is talking to Cristados, which, you know, is probably not great for them. BB comes over and says hi and is immediately enamored with with James Bond. It's it's not clear how old BB's character is meant to be, but it's good to know that there is a line <laughs> because and there is a line. Yeah, yeah, because there's this very minor, frankly, subplot where BB is kind of infatuated with this older man, James Bond, by the way, looking a quite older man. Yeah. But to his credit, he's not into it. Not going to go there. Yeah. Not going to entertain it. Yeah. Which will lead to, I think, my favorite Bond moment in the movie. <laughs> But we'll, we'll get to that. I almost texted you a joke about it when I watched it at the time, but I was like, actually, I'm going to not. But the implication, just based on how old Olympic athletes are while they're training to enter the Olympics, she's in her mid to late teens, mm -hmm. like is clearly playing it like a petulant teenager, right? Yeah. Like that is the implication here. What actually really throws me out of this one is you're right. Like Moore by this point is looking his age. Yeah. They are playing to the, again, it's the fantasy of James Bond, where like, all women love him. So she, in this, in this scene where she meets him, is like immediately giant grinning smile upon laying eyes on him. And you can see infatuation wash over her face. And then she gets all shy and she leans over to Christados. And Christados is like, oh, Bibi would like to know if you would escort her to the biathlon later. Um, and Bond is like, mm, no, I, I got other things to, to deal with. And, and he's like, well, I would feel better if she were accompanied, please. You know, I insist. And Bond is like, all right, I would be delighted. I'm staying at the Ramada. He is staying at a Ramada. Uh, <laughs> um, and so he he does agree to escort her to the biathlon. The thing that stretches credulity for me is given the implied age difference that she would be as taken with James Bond as she is, because frankly, Moore is not that dashing by this point. He's still suave and cool, but he's he's on the downward side of his years as Bond. <laughs> the jowls descend. No doubt. At no point would I say that Roger Moore becomes unattractive, but... It's just definitely getting on. As I say, he's still cool and he's still suave and he's still like carrying himself with a great deal of, of poise and charisma. But age is becoming apparent at this point. I'm just so glad that they had him not just turn her down, but be like really patronizing about it. <laughs> yeah. Hard no. Yeah. Anyway, but we'll get to that. So Bond is like, sure, I'll accompany you to the thing. Even though her coach who's there, Jacoba Brink, played by Jill Bennett is like i don't know about she's this great oh she's awesome she's been in a bajillion things i don't see any star wars so i'm not going to mention it uh -huh. i i like the coach because the sort of like vaguely russian sounding older female characters in the movies so far have all been like specter heavies <laughs> mm. right and she's not she's not involved in this at all <laughs> <laughs> we don't learn that about her until way later in the film. So with the, the history of the Bond franchise to this point, there's like a period of uncertainty in this movie where you're like, oh, is she like, is she going to be the like Irma Brunt? of this movie or is she that's an, that's a good point i hadn't thought of that sort of playing with expectations there a little bit yeah, yeah. the upshot of the scene is Cristados fills bond in on who the dove is and that he needs to check out this guy colombo because 
he knows who Columbo is. They used to be friends, but turned into rivals and they don't get along, which is how he knows so much about Columbo's movements. <laughs> Little thing, when they stand to leave, he shakes Bond's hand and then just completely ghosts Luigi. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was gonna. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. So Bond and Luigi are walking along. Luigi's gonna look into Columbo and we see the dove watch this happening and he stands up to leave as they're walking through the town square which by the way is full of snow that they trucked in for this yeah no doubt because cortina had an unusually well this is what it was supposed to look like but cortina had an unusually warm winter it's evident in this film yeah actually again if you are a skier Mm. the skiing conditions in this movie are grim but (laughs) great conditions to run a ski bike downhill (laughs) fair enough according to the stunt performers and we see a ski bike now the camera pans over from bond because bond spots molina entering a shop in the middle of the town square and he's like okay wait luigi you take off i got to deal with this why is why is molina here and the camera pans over and we see two dirt bikes i guess but they've got enormous spikes in their wheels because they're snow bikes and he yeah goes into the shop of sort of like adventuring goods and melina's buying a crossbow (laughs) which i love (laughs) so he pops next door she hasn't seen him yet ducks into the florist to get away from her he doesn't want to spoil that he knows that she's there yet and he's like oh yeah give me a a bouquet of uh lilies i guess and the woman at the counter is like okay sure i'll take care of that the florist is played by robin young who won a be a bond girl contest oh mission accomplished really stretching the definition to just be a woman in a bond movie but yeah so it was for this film not for a previous film and they didn't like follow through no no this was this was the on-screen role that she won by by winning that contest yeah all right she got to be a florist in for your eyes only yeah mission accomplished bond spots the men on bikes dashes back outside to throw melina out of the way grabs like a I don't know what you even call them, like a like a road barricade, a barricade? Like the white and the plank off of a barricade. It's the white and orange striped like don't walk here or detour around this. Uses it to knock one of the riders off, subsequently throws it into the wheel of another rider, which gets like locked in the wheel and flips him through the window of the florist shop. The woman with the bouquet of lilies emerges from the back of the store looking very confused and is like, here's your flowers to bond. And he's like, ah, uh, Send them to the funeral, (laughs) which I quite like. The other cyclist or the other motorbiker like rides off, evidently deterred. And Melina also tries to leave, but Bond chases her down and is like, hold up. What what's going on here? Why are you even here? Because she's also tracking down Locke. She's also going up the chain of command, essentially. (laughs) And yeah, she basically like gives Bond exactly the, the same reasoning that Bond is used, right? This was the guy who paid the assassin. Clearly, I need to murder him. <laughs> mm-hmm. This feels like yet another refinement of the the female foil where like all through this movie, Melina is like super competent and she's got her own agenda going on and she's doing her own thing. She like gets in Bond's way, but not in, not, not in like a malicious way, just like I'm doing my thing and our things are slightly at odds with one another, but then realizes that actually the like the better thing to do is team up. Bond just sort of like tries to send her away, but over the course of the movie, they they sort of like realize that they actually, they both have something to offer this caper. Uh, Melina's awesome in this movie. I think the character is really good and I think the use of her in this movie is really good. Yeah. 
they get into a horse-drawn sleigh and they have that discussion while she keeps telling the driver to stop and he's like no no keep going and the driver's getting very confused and annoyed with them (laughs) bond eventually gets back to his hotel room where he notices somebody has put a do not disturb tag on the door so he enters with his gun drawn only to find bb coming out of his bathroom having just had a shower yeah wearing a towel And she then gets into his bed and under the covers takes the towel off and is waiting for him in bed. And he's like, what? Uh, no, what's happening? This is a bad idea. I don't think Christatos would like it. She's like, oh, he's too old for me. It's like, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Not okay. Like this is a, he picks up her clothes and takes them over to the bed and is like, put put these on, you know, like turns around so she can get changed. You know, it's a he's very believably uncomfortable. Yes, this, of course, the what I said, I think is my favorite Bond moment of the movie. It's just like my favorite joke Mm -hmm. in the movie is Bond looking super awkward in this whole situation. And like he's just told her, like, put your clothes on. And she's like, what? You don't like me? And he's like, I think you're wonderful, but I don't think this is a good idea. Please, please, no. And then delivers the line, get dressed and I'll buy you an ice cream. (laughs) And you know that, you know, that awkward Muppet meme, (laughs) deadpan faced and then looks away awkwardly. That is the face that Roger Moore is giving when he delivers that line. It is so good. (laughs) It's really funny. It it also really hammers home how young he feels she is that that he's like, yeah, "We'll, we'll go for a walk and I'll. I'll buy you an ice cream, you know, just like (laughs) you, you child. This scene is awkward. Mm -hmm. Bond is, of course, being very patronizing, but not without reason and context. Bond's interactions with BB for basically the rest of the movie are all funny. Yeah, (laughs) this is the genesis of a plot thread that Bond is just saying things that are flying over her head that are mostly hilarious. She does throw herself at him and kiss him. And he's like, "Mm, mm -mm." Uh, just wanted to, you know, not act like we were pretending that that didn't happen. But oh, I just had forgotten. Well, because at no point is he remotely into it. (laughs) He's like, no, do not do this to exit the scene. Like that happens right at the end of the scene. Right. Like she runs over and she plants a big kiss on him. And he you're right. It's like "Mm, mm, mm, mm." she then like wraps him in like a big bear hug. He's like trying to extricate himself from the situation he ends up just sort of reaching around and grabbing the doorknob opening the door behind them to like shift them away from the door you can see his eyes bulge out of his head he's like this is not good Mm. (laughs) it is very good like facial acting all through the scene from roger moore i just like that I like that Bond has a line. I like that he has a conscience. I like that (laughs) they don't try to make this okay. Like they play it for laughs and maybe that's already too far. But I I just, I like that he's, at no point does he entertain anything. He's just like, no. Yeah, no, I I like, I don't know. This, This does not cross the line for me. It is the logical end point of where being Bond will take you. And the fact that he's like, "Mm -mm, nope. And it's not a factor that he's willing to consider in the film. So them playing it for laughs is there's never any risk that it's going to happen. Right. Like they're not they never at any point past here indicate that there's ever going to be anything happening between them. Yeah. And so by nature of sort of disarming the whole plot line, it it, they allow it to just sort of be funny. Mm -hmm. We cut to a downhill run on one of the mountains we see Locke the dove 
get out of his car and wander towards the mountain as Bond and BB ski down it. They are sort of watching and going along with a bunch of people doing biathlon practice. I mean, it's I, it looks like they're actually doing a real competition. Practice is not the right word. Like they're, there's an actual biathlon happening, but this is not like an Olympics or anything. They're, these are all people who are likely to be in the Olympics, but this is, you know, I, I yeah. don't know. It's like a local competition of some Regional, kind. yeah. BB's just as infatuated with one of the <laughs> biathletes <laughs> as she is with Bond. And I, I think he makes some sort of joke about how fleeting her affections are or something yeah he says you know what bb you're fickle <laughs> right <laughs> and then she's like oh you're jealous and he's like Mm-mm, nope <laughs> yeah no, I'm, I'm not <laughs> eric kriegler he's an east german biathlete played by john wyman who doesn't have a lot of movie credits but he did play the mighty ajax in a series of uk commercials for ajax cleaning products all right, I can see it. Yeah. So she like tries to call out to him and is like, hey, hey, can I come to your hotel room later? And he just sort of stares at her like she has horns growing out of her head and keeps going. Well, he, she's disrupting his concentration. Yeah. He has eyes on the prize. So he gets to one of the shooting parts, the biathlon. What a weird event, by the way, biathlon. Yeah. Uh, there's a really cool shot where he's lining up one of his shots and the camera cuts to just the biathlon targets so it's the black screen with these two white circles and then one of them gets blown out as he shoots it and framed in the circle is Kriegler it's just it's a really cool shot <laughs> the dove is watching all of this by the way so he's he's at a distance sort of keeping an eye on Bond and BB and Kriegler and you don't really know what's going on or who's up to what kind of shenanigans I like that about this movie there's a lot of you don't really know if it's your first time watching it you don't really know yeah what's up with who and what the plans are by nature of the fact that i cannot commit this film to memory i completely forgot what the major plot revelation is at the sort of two-thirds mark of this film so it caught me completely by surprise it was like watching this movie again for the first time yeah kathleen also didn't know we were watching it together and she was like oh that's so cool <laughs> so <laughs> the dove gets in his car and leaves and we see that the men on motorbikes have like asexually reproduced again. So there's two of them <laughs> now, like one, of, there was two of them and one of them got killed, but now there's two of them again. Kriegler has skied off the biathlon into the woods, ripped off his like number tag and is working with the guys on bikes. So he lines up his gun at bond and tries to shoot him and misses. And there's this tense scene with bond in the woods, not being able to see where Kriegler is. And he's got his PPK and Kriegler is a very good shot. Shoots the, gun out of bond's hand bond tries to grab it with his ski pole but again kriegler's a very very good shot and actually shoots bond's ski pole in half but mm -hmm. it's a single action rifle so bond uses that as an opportunity to take off down the hill with only one working ski pole while kriegler reloads and then hey matt it's a ski chase it's a ski chase <laughs> and this one's scary yeah man mostly because like this like so there's a bunch of stuff going on in this scene that's just a lot of fun. So one, the snow conditions are awful. Right. <laughs> and now I'm just going to go on a deep dive on skiing. Snow conditions are awful. This is what I would describe as like late spring skiing conditions. The snow looks really wet and heavy. There's not a lot of it. Like it's not very deep, which means there's just a lot of exposed dirt. <laughs> But on top of that, like he's skiing in the trees at this point. So we get some like fun, like tree skiing. Hey, question for you. Sure. Why does Kriegler, who is such an amazing athlete, have so much trouble skiing after Bond? Kriegler, of course, is on 
cross-country skis. And Bond is on downhill skis, which is also going to be a problem for Bond shortly. But an important thing to know is cross-country skiing, of course, like there are little hills. I mean, it depends on how good you are at cross-country skiing. I'm I'm not a cross-country skier myself. I've done it a little bit, but I would not consider myself like proficient at it. It's really, 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 really hard hmm. to downhill ski on cross-country skis it is like an advanced skill and that's on groomed runs i cannot imagine trying to like tree ski on cross-country skis that's absurd but there is a form of downhill skiing that uses like similar binding setup to cross-country skis it uses different skis but telemarking is a like a style of downhill skiing that uses the like your your heel is not mounted to the ski and so you go, go into these like deep kneels or like lunges as you as you ski it's beautiful we don't see any of that in this film Kriegler is fully just chasing after Bond downhill skiing on these skis and he is having trouble with it because naturally you would have trouble with it he does end up going like ass over tea kettle at one point and, and ending up on his back. But credit to him. He's a good skier. He, he manages to follow him most of the way down the mountain where they all arrive at the base of a ski jump. As Bond arrives, he sees a black sedan there with, you know, a man in a black outfit getting out. The two motorbikers pull up to the car and so bond is like oh i see and gets in line for the ski jump and like fades into the crowd right kriegler pulls up to the guy who just pulled up in the car they have a chat and bond is trying to look you know nondescript and hide in the crowd and as he goes in the dove i guess spots him and so he and kriegler walk over to the entryway to the the ski jump because they're all at the ground level and bond like manages to get in and gets on the elevator that's going to take him to the top of the ski jump and the, and just as they walk through the door he sees the elevator doors close in front of him and he's like all right good i'm in the clear and then the doors open up again and they both step onto the elevator staring right at him brief aside yeah so this is Emil Leopold Locke, a.k.a. The Dove, played by Michael Gotthard, and one of the henchmen, and if you don't recognize him yet, you will when I say, played by a very young Charles Dance. Okay, I gotta look at... Oh, wow. The Elder Lannister. Yeah, wow. This was one of his first on-screen roles. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, it so is. His character's name is Klaus. He's, I mean, he's been in... Way more than Game of Thrones, but that's definitely the biggest thing that he's been involved in. Right. Bond still trying to look inconspicuous on the elevator as they're going up. So he's got downhill skis. He's got one pole and another pole that's like broken off maybe a foot from the handle, which he's using to hold his skis. So like the other passengers in the elevator look at him and holding this broken pole. But he's separated by a crowd of people and they don't want to make a scene in the elevator. So they let him get to the top. Bond has like all the way through this been pushing to the front, right? So he's trying to keep as much distance between them and him as he can. So they get to the top top and he steps out to the front of the line is like all right we're gonna take the ski jump and uh, like full-blown olympic ski jump right yeah at this point the the goons that are chasing him like Locke sort of takes up position behind him the other guy i guess goes down a level to like the second entrance to try and like waylay bond on his way down the the jump bond like shoves his way to the top thinks for a minute about trying to go back to the elevator and and sees that the dove is still waiting there so out he goes he, he walks up 
and there's like a coach there sending people right like watching people and sending them down the the jump and he looks down the jump and he he sees that there's the two motorbikes in the car down at the base and he's like oh geez i'm this is not going to be easy the coach like cues him up to get ready and so skis go down and he clips into the skis and he takes up position and as he's as the coach is about to send him he looks and is like he notices he's in downhill skis again a little bit of skiing information here ski jumpers don't wear downhill skis no (laughs) because when you're in a downhill ski you're in a very rigid boot your heel and your toe are locked into the binding because you need like a rigid connection between yourself and the ski in order to be able to hold the snow ski jumpers have an unbound heel so that the skis can tilt off their feet which allows like it makes it easier for them to land so the coach of course sees he's in downhill skis and protests is like no man this is a terrible idea what are you doing at which point bond essentially distract he sort of pulls like a look over there and he's like huh and then he just pulls off and goes he gets hit by charles dance's character who has now put on skis but like jumping skis and taken up position just below at the second jump so he like body checks bond on the ski jump they sort of bounce off each other and both go down the the jump while kriegler is like down at the car he lines them up to take a pot shot at bond but misses bond sort of jumps kriegler's car and then we go into what is actually a pretty sweet downhill skiing chase scene kriegler can't get a shot because klaus charles dance's character is in the way and so they both that's right they both land really awkwardly klaus like tumbles to the side and kicks up a bunch of snow out of which like a fog bank bond like bursts forth (laughs) jumps past everybody and keeps on heading down the hill and i just I, i love that there's this extended downhill chase and then in the middle of it is this like really tense scene where everyone's being really quiet and trying to sort of jockey for position going up and down this ski jump tower and then like i just love that it's like oh crap downhill chase and guns and stuff and then like okay everyone chill out and then ah, now more downhill chasing it's 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 really cool yeah it is really cool Bond continues downhill with the two motorbikes in chase. As we learn momentarily, the motorbikes are equipped with machine guns. (laughs) Like, not the motorbike drivers, but the bikes themselves have these little machine gun pods, basically we're next to the headlight, so that they're facing forward and they start shooting at Bond. We get a great scene where there's like a ski instructor with his class of, of like learning skiers all standing around and Bond comes over a lip in the hill. Bad skiing etiquette. Comes over a lip in the hill at top speed and like cuts in between the class and the instructor, bumps the last guy in line as he carves his turn by, causing the entire class of novice skiers to dominate up the hill as they all fall over and crash into one another there's another part where there's a bunch of folks having an outside lunch at a lodge and bond skis along their table sending their lunch and all their drinks flying and the two men on motorbikes (laughs) fly through and break through the balcony and continue on down the hill and we get our third of three shots of victor turjanski looking shocked he doesn't do the full (laughs) it's such a brief shot he doesn't do the full like look at his drink he just sort of goes oh just off the balcony of the patio yeah i forgot of course that at this point because klaus took a tumble one of these motorbike riders is now kriegler right bond wedges his ski pole between some trees and takes out the non-kriegler bike driver and then we cut to a shot of a bobsleigh team heading down the cortina (laughs) bobsleigh track 
what a whoever thought of this you absolute legend yeah bond skis up to and then down into the track and so does kriegler so now you have a four-man bobsleigh being pursued by james bond on skis being pursued by kriegler on a motorbike yeah this is nuts just from a strict like stunt point of view i i cannot comment on how difficult this particular like bobsled track is and i'm sure it was all i'm sure this was managed of course in shooting for the the movie but there's a lot of shots of a skier a person who's clearly not roger moore it's a stunt person obviously skiing down a bobsled chute which is just pure ice skiing ice sucks it is really hard the stunt person doing this is doing an incredible job of staying upright (laughs) this stunt is ludicrous I watch this and I'm like, that seems like a nightmare to perform. So it's I mean, I so I don't want to I don't want to turn this into a, a big downer, but uh, this is to date, hopefully ever the only James Bond's a- action sequence that has resulted in the death of a stuntman. Ah, yeah, I I didn't know that until very recently because they don't talk about it. On the DVD special features. Yeah, unsurprisingly. Yeah, uh, not the skier. Um, I mean, that does look profoundly challenging. And I mean, even the motorbike as well. It's absolutely wild. But it was actually uh, one of the bobsleigh pilots for the stunt really? shots. Yeah. Stuntman by the name of Paolo Rigoni. The bobsleigh flipped and trapped him in there and not very not good. Yeah, that's really unfortunate. Yeah, especially because like one of my favorite shots in this whole sequence is bond on skis behind the bobsleigh and the guy in back (laughs) turns around and is like what the and then taps the shoulder of the guy in front of him who's like what the and taps the shoulder of the guy in front of him who's like what the and taps the shoulder of the pilot who turns around and eventually you have this cannon of like doot 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 and they're all like huh yeah very entertaining i don't know if any of those people are paula ragoni i assume not but so yeah really challenging stunt yeah i mean it looks it it looks it if you know literally anything about skiing i guess this is without a doubt in my opinion at least the most ridiculous skiing stunt we've seen in a movie yet Mm -hmm. this seems like a surefire way to get yourself killed and it is a sure looks like a surefire way to get somebody killed i guess and that seems to be how it panned out unfortunately yeah we get to the bottom of the the bobsled track yeah bond jumps the side on skis gets out of it and he takes a bit of a tumble kriegler on the motorbike follows him miffs the jump kriegler goes down bond is also down sort of down this embankment and so kriegler pulls his his gun off his back to shoot him only to discover that the barrel has bent into the like the shape of an s because of the way he landed on it so he throws the gun at james bond sort of like a javelin and misses and then turns and picks up the now trashed motorbike hurls that at james bond again narrowly missing and bond stands back up puts his skis back on because of course they've both popped off in the the ensuing crash after he jumped out of the the bobsled track and heads off with kriegler essentially pulling a like gosh darn you fist shaking at the sky sort of situation in the background i i I love that he lifts the entire bike he lifts the entire bike and heaves it at him 
some sort of super soldier. Yeah. Now nighttime, Bond and Luigi pull up to the arena in the Lotus. Bond leaves Luigi there. He's going to go inside. Bond is going inside because he that's where BB's practicing and he's late to pick her up and or say hi or whatever, you know, because they were hanging out and then they got separated. And he's like, hey, tell me, uh, tell me about uh, Eric Kriegler. What's up with that guy? Because he's like, this dude just tried to kill me. Mm. And I mean, he doesn't say that, but, you know, but she's like, oh, he's amazing. You know, he doesn't he doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He's, you know, like what? God, what an athlete. And the coach is like, BB, we need to leave. We need to leave right now. They're like, OK. And three hockey players come onto the rink because I guess it's their turn to practice. One of them is wearing a not Habs uniform. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Play, playing for the Montreal Not Habs. Yeah, I want to say there's a, a Not Oilers uniform. These are the 1980s. It looks like, for the era, to the best of my ability to tell, it looks like a facsimile of a Montreal Canadiens jersey. Mm -hmm. Something resembling. I don't think it is. I think it might just be like the Norwegian team. The goaltender might just be a Norway jersey, but it's sort of like it's yellow and navy blue. Right. Around this era, I think the Los Angeles Kings would have been yellow and purple. So I think it's probably just Norway. Uh, and the other one looks like, I mean, it looks like a bunch of jerseys, yeah. right? Because there's a bunch of teams with these colors. It's blue with red and white highlights. It looks like it might be the New York Rangers. Oh, it does look era. like a Rangers jersey. You're right. Yeah. But it's it's not. Somebody, now that I've implied that they're NHL teams. Hmm. <laughs> that all three of them could potentially be NHL teams. Somebody in the comments will correct me with which jerseys these are correct to the era of 1981. One of them is definitely the Habs, though. For those listening who are unaware, the Habs or Habitants and the Canadians, that's the same team. Yeah. One of them is definitely the Montreal NHL team. The other two, who knows? But what happens is the lights turn off and the three hockey men start attacking Bond. So, Matt, I have a question for you. Yes. In your capacity as someone who has refereed hockey. Yes like properly yes how many how many penalties do, <laughs> is the home team incurring here all right so first question are we presuming that roger moore's james bond is wearing hockey equipment like are, are we are we saying they're they're like these are things they are doing to an actual player of the game let's pretend yeah okay so the action scene begins with an open ice hit on somebody who is not in possession of the puck. So I would call that probably interference. We'll we'll say interference on that one. The other team has the puck. You have no reason to be laying an open ice hit on uh, a member of the team not in possession. Then we have a, a check from behind. So I don't know what the rules are in the NHL right now, but in minor hockey, which I refereed, check from behind, even an open ice check from behind is an immediate game misconduct. The goaltender is out of his net and drops yet another open a nice check from behind on bond that probably probably vaults into intent to injure which would be like a match penalty but at minimum the the goaltender has now also incurred a a game misconduct for checking from behind so far in terms of penalty minutes that would go on the clock we've got two five minute majors for the two game misconducts we have the opening hit interference that's two minutes so the team their team is currently got 12 minutes of penalty time between three players and we have not even gotten to the most egregious yet the first instance of it i would immediately call as a match penalty for kicking as the player in the New York jersey skates towards Bond and just as he arrives, kicks his foot forward so that he's skate blade first and proceeds to put his skate blade through the boards as Bond dodges out of the way. Uh, so that'll be another five minutes on the clock for now a fourth person serving. Nope. 
I think we can stack those on one person. So one person's in the box for 10 minutes, two consecutive majors. One person is in the box for five minutes. One person is in the box for two minutes. So the goaltender gives like a full-blown overhand chop with his stick. That'll at, at minimum be a major for high sticking. <laughs> <laughs> because he doesn't hit bond you could probably throw in another match penalty there for intent to injure but at minimum it's going to be a five minute major for high sticking the next guy comes in does the same thing so same call there bond then manages to get a hold of a stick and he comes along winds up and just belts the goaltender in the rib cage with the blade of his stick so that is going to be a five minute major plus a game misconduct to bond for slash incurring injury and he puts the goaltender in the net though so he scores <laughs> it is for those who haven't watched the movie it is counted on the scoreboard as a goal <laughs> which is not how that works that is not automatic the implication there is that there is some but there's a timekeeper in the penalty box like counting these goals <laughs> Bond then grabs the skate of a second player who tries to kick him. So player gets a match penalty for kicking. Bond grabs his leg and like spins him around and throws him into the net. I'm going to call two minutes for holding on that one. I mean, it wasn't unprovoked. <laughs> I'm going to let him off easy. And then Bond hops aboard the Zamboni. <laughs> which the final player skates toward and Bond hits the player with the Zamboni, causing him to ricochet into the net. I will probably call, I don't know what I'm going to call that one. In all my years of refereeing, I've never seen that one, but uh, I, I'm going to go with hits him with the Zamboni. Boarding. We'll call it boarding. <laughs> Five minutes in a game misconduct for boarding incurring injury. <laughs> I have had a huge smile on my face this entire time. I'm so glad. <laughs> and then the net collapses, which is not a thing that can happen. Yeah. There's a deleted scene where Bond then dumps all the Zamboni snow on them. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Two minutes for snowing the goaltender. <laughs> the the one in the yellow jersey is Charles Dance again. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> After all of the hockey fun, there was a brief scene of Bond heading back out to the car where he finds Luigi dead and grasped in his hand is a pin of a dove that Bond previously saw Locke wearing when they were climbing up the ski jump tower. So Locke has killed Luigi. We then cut back to the Albanian coast or the Greek coast. And again, I think they're off the coast of Albania. But what we didn't mention earlier is in the scene in the horse-drawn sleigh, Bond convinces Melina to go home. He's like, look, they, they were after you. They know who you are. You need to not be here. When I find something out, I will come and find you and tell you. And she's like, okay, fine, I accept that. So she leaves. So we see her coming ashore, and she's greeted by Bond in a double-breasted navy blazer with gold buttons. Matt? It's fine. You know my opinion <laughs> on Roger Moore's double-breasted suits. I know, I just love talking about it. This is not the worst of them. I don't like the look. I just don't like double-breasted suits. I think they're boxy. They suit a very specific kind of suiting need, and I don't feel like that suiting need is the suiting need that a British secret agent needs to fill. Hmm. Uh, you can tell that Bond is casual because... He's not wearing a tie. And he's got cream-colored pants on. I didn't... Oh, yeah. Huh. Uh, weird note, being as this is 1981, that Carol Bouquet is dubbed in this movie. Really? Yeah. She had too thick of an accent, or the wrong kind of thick accent, I guess. Amusingly, she did her own dub for the French release. Ah, all right. Yeah. 
just sort of weird. Anyway, so she's coming ashore to buy supplies for all the crew on the boat. So there's a scene of her knowing and being beloved by everybody at the marketplace. You know, they're like, look, figs, try these, try my figs. They watch some people dancing and, you know, they have a fun afternoon wandering around the market. And then she's like, right, why were you here again? (laughs) You know, he says, okay, so I found out some information. I need to find this Columbo guy. You know, what were your, what was your dad working on? Can I see his notes? And she's like, I haven't even been into his study. I can't bring myself to even go in there. Bond is like, okay, well, I'll keep looking into it. I'm meeting with someone who's going to give me some information later tonight. And that is in fact that he's meeting with Christados again, who is now here. So we cut to a casino and hey, it's Baccarat. Haven't seen that in a while. Yeah. How's he doing this time? I presume he's winning. He is winning. Yes, he is. He is winning at the Baccarat. In the interest of of like improving my ability to contribute i watched videos on how baccarat works i i read up on how baccarat works i still have no idea how baccarat works (laughs) (laughs) i know i think you're trying to get a nine but the like the betting is a complete mystery to me so the problem is my only exposure to baccarat is in bond movies Mm -hmm. where The rules are never explained and Bond is winning all the time unless he wants to lose. But the way it's set up in Bond movies, of course, is the player is a dealer and the card shoe moves around the table from hand to hand or from game to game. As I say, this game is a mystery to me. And I know that you can bet either on your own cards or on the bank and that the odds are different depending on which you do. If you bet on the bank and the bank wins, then the bank takes a commission of like 5% of your win versus if you bet on yourself and win, then you get your money doubled. But all of the deconstructions of Baccarat that I've ever seen all indicate that it it like the dealer is the house and the player plays one-on-one against the dealer and multiple players can play against the dealer at the same time. But that's never how we see it executed in a Bond movie. In a Bond movie, it's always Bond playing one-on-one with someone as like the current dealer. So I have no way to determine what's going on in Baccarat whenever there's a Baccarat scene other than just watching Bond walk away with a stack of chips at the end, which granted is the only important thing you need to know about Baccarat when watching a Baccarat scene in a Bond movie. But we're halfway through the franchise at this point, and I figured I needed to out my my relative lack of Baccarat knowledge at this point. You know more than I do. I tell you what. Oh, okay. (laughs) Getting that out and recorded for posterity, undoubtedly somebody will, again, I'm just calling out the the comments over and over again, undoubtedly somebody will tell me every way that I'm wrong and clarify the game of Baccarat for me in the YouTube comments. Mm, They have to be useful for something. (laughs) Thank you all for the kind feedback. I I appreciate it. So... Bond is playing against a man named Bunky. Poor Bunky. And we know he's named Bunky because a woman comes up behind him and goes, how are you doing, Bunky? Are you losing? And basically goads him into putting more money on the line and he does and then loses. And she's like, ah, what a shame, Bunky. So Bunky, who is this sort of larger gentleman with a lazy eye is played by paul brook and do you know where most people know paul brook from where do most people know paul brook from from return of the jedi okay yeah (laughs) where he plays i think i know where this is going he plays the very sad rancor keeper amazing (laughs) (laughs) most excellent well, he gets to be very sad in this, too. Yeah. Hey. Because he bets. Ha- I, I don't know what currency they're playing in. They're they're speaking French, so I'm going to just say Franks. Sure. That is undoubtedly incorrect. 
because I think they're in Albania. But he bets 500,000, half of his remaining pool of chips. And uh, the woman who's walked up behind him is like, only half? Really? I didn't realize you were such a coward. And so he goes all in for a million, what I'm going to call francs, and immediately loses it to Bond. And then she leaves and Bond cashes out his chips because Christados has shown up. So Bond's like, cool, I'm done. <laughs> oh, it's brutal. So he and Christados go and sit down and, and have dinner. He's like, so look over there. Uh, by the way, that's Columbo just over there. That's the man you want. And he's like, what? what? This him right there? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is his casino. So, you know, he wouldn't do anything to me here in his casino. He wouldn't <laughs> risk doing that. So thought I'd just bring you over here. Also at Columbo's table is the woman we just saw. She is Countess Liesel von Schlaff. <laughs> Try saying that five times times fast. T t times times? Try, try saying that five times fast. <laughs> I I choose not to. <laughs> yes, choose. Yes, she's played by Cassandra Harris, who until her untimely death in 1991 was married to Pierce Brosnan. And when they were filming this, Pierce Brosnan was like hanging around on set and they had lunch with Cubby Broccoli. And even then they were like, this guy would make a good James Bond. And then when it finally came time for Roger Moore to leave the franchise, they were like, Pierce Brosnan, do you want to come be a James Bond? And he's like, I can't. I'm doing it on TV <laughs> because he was in the show Remington Steel, which was a spy TV series. And so he's like, yeah. I can't I can't do James Bond. I have this TV commitment. And they're like, oh, that's a shame. OK, no worries. Timothy Dalton, come do Bond for two movies and then we'll get Pierce Brosnan. In. Anyway, but this is where they <laughs> met him because he was Cassandra Harris's husband. Right. They're talking about Columbo. Bond notices that. Columbo has cufflinks with a dove on it. Christatos says, are you prepared to kill him? And Bond says, just tell me where he's going to be. Over at Columbo's table, he excuses himself from dinner for a moment. Waiters come and change Bond and Christatos's table setting for the food they've ordered, which also includes taking away a now burned out candle and replacing it. That candle holder now appears in Columbo's office where there is a tape recorder inside and Columbo is listening to it. He sits there chewing on his pistachios listening to bond say that he's prepared to kill colombo so he's like hmm that's interesting so he goes back out and then all of a sudden he and the countess uh checks notes liesel von schlaf start to have an argument you know she's like how dare you talk to me like that and he's like i'll talk to you however i want you're my woman you know etc etc and she throws water at him and he snatches her napkin away and then she leaves and looking sad and on her way out she sort of makes eye contact with bond and he's like hmm well that could be an opportunity and christatos goes or it could be a trap and bond's like yeah but <laughs> so he catches up with her and is like uh, may i offer you a ride to be so much easier than catching a cab as they leave the camera reveals that melina is also at the casino and has been listening in on this conversation mm -hmm. which i'm confident doesn't come up yeah not really i don't think there's any reason for melina to be there or for that reveal but uh, yeah anyway i like the scene a lot just because there's there's a lot of spy craft happening yeah in this scene we don't always get this sort of level of detail in the spy craft of james bond movies yeah and we won't learn until a little later exactly what the mechanics of the scene has set up but everybody in this scene is in the know mm -hmm. like everybody is playing each other in this scene and it's great yeah i like also that bond driving her home is having his driver 
<laughs> drive them to her house. Yeah. Because, of course, Bond is not driving his own car. So they talk and they start to get up to kisses. When they arrive, she invites him inside. She's, well, why don't you come in now for a, for a drink? And then she heads in and Bond turns to the driver and is like, I won't need you for the rest of tonight. She is way more forward than that. It's way more forward than why don't you come in for a drink? She is like, why don't you come in for a drink? I have champagne and oysters inside. Yes, right. <laughs> and Bond turns around and is like, I will not be needing your services for the rest of the evening. Yeah, and the driver's is <laughs> like, oh, yeah. We cut to a great set of this sort of beachfront house with a, you know, fireplace and a big pile of pillows slash rug on the floor. The sets in this movie are not quite as like extravagant as Ken Adams, but the production mm -hmm. design was by Peter Lamont, who's worked with the series for some time. I really like it. I think the art direction really supports the intent of the movie of being less bombastic than Moonraker. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They do and sex. We wake up the next morning and they're walking along the beach. I don't know why they're walking along the beach, but they are. And she basically admits she's like, uh, yeah, that was an act. Columbo wanted me to get information on you, but you're nice, so I won't. And then a dune buggy appears on the beach. In fact, a couple dune buggies, one of them driven by Locke the Dove. So they freak out and start running away. The upshot of this scene is that Countess Liesel von Schlaff is not great at making decisions when being pursued by dune buggies and leaves herself very open to being just absolutely run down by the dove. The stunt performer received a bit of a head injury clonking into the front of the dune buggy. Yeah, no doubt. It's a pretty brutal looking hit. It really is. Bond is held at gunpoint by the dove and Klaus, and then Klaus is hit in the back with a harpoon and collapses. Bond uses that distraction to kick the gun out of the dove's hand the dove books it and just takes off the beach completely there's a there's a shot in here that is almost lifted straight from the pre-title fight to ohmss <laughs> of like the gun in the foreground on the sand and the countess prone in the distance out of focus so much of this movie was like wow this reminds me of ohmss but with better fight yeah. scenes these four men in wetsuits with harpoons run up onto the beach having because you're like oh that was uh shot in the back with a th that that's got to be molina no that was a harpoon not a crossbow bolt and these four men in wetsuits with doves on them run up onto the beach and knock bond out and it's like well wait a minute if they have a dove, why'd they attack the dove? Why did they attack Locke and kill Klaus if they're... What's going on here? So also, there is your justi justification narratively for Molina having been at the casino. You would not know that Molina would have known where Bond was unless she overheard the conversation and saw him go home with Liesel von Schlaff. Yeah, but it's not her. It, it's just a fake out. I know. It's a fake out that lasts all of three seconds before you see a shot of the dudes holding harpoons. Right. So it's like... Uh, maybe I I think that's why they justified it at least. Fair like, enough. That's what the the impl or the the reasoning behind it is. Bond wakes up. He's on a boat, and a man comes in and gives him different clothes to wear. It's a big sailboat, and he gets led at gunpoint to the office of Columbo. He's been kidnapped by Columbo's men, and the and Columbo's like, okay, yeah, yeah, you with the gun, whatever, leave. Bond and I are going to talk. And he picks up his tape player and plays the clip of Bond, basically saying that he would be willing to kill Columbo. And Columbo's like, so what's up with that? You are being played. So this is Columbo, played by Topol, who is best known probably for his role as Revtevia in 
Fiddler on the Roof. Mm. He was also in Flash Gordon as Zarkov. A lot of Flash Gordon connections too, amusingly. Like Max von Sydow played Ming and Max von Sydow then played Blofeld in Never Say right. Never Again. But anyway, and he's just so... He's so charismatic. He's so immediately, like, you are so immediately at ease with him. He's just like, what's up? I'm a criminal, but I'm not a bad guy. And he says that Bond's being played. Right. He's being played by Christatos, you know, the one that actually looks evil. He's like, he's the bad guy. (laughs) The dove works for him and you are being goofed on. And you immediately believe him because you're just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. This guy's so nice. He's so amicable. He he really is. This scene and heading into the like the final climax of the movie definitely echo OHMSS for me, Mm -hmm. particularly the like being escorted into the office at gunpoint. Yeah. And then finding an ally in a like a giant office on the other side Mm -hmm. he doesn't do the like dodging through the door and and like getting the upper hand thing in this one but it's very similar kind of dynamic of like but actually what if we work together (laughs) yeah it's great and he is so good like the the look on his face and the presence that he brings to this is immediately disarming he's like you nailed it exactly he looks so smug when he's playing the tape because he's just sort of like i can't wait to see how he's going to try and explain this <laughs> Bond is like, okay, I don't believe you because I don't believe anyone, but let's see how this goes. And mm-hmm. Columbo's like, that's fair. Come with me on this mission tonight and you'll see what Christatus is up to. And then if that's not enough information for you, I don't know what to tell you. I could have killed you and I didn't. So trust me on this one. He goes and gets them both a drink and he's like, here you go. And Bond's like, I don't think you and I are, I, I don't trust you enough to, I'm not drinking with you. And so Columbo pulls Bond's gun on him and then is like, all right, you might need this tonight. And Bond takes it, checks it, sees that it's full and that Columbo has indeed handed him a loaded weapon. And then Bond is like, oh, okay, I'll have that drink now. <laughs> Points the gun back at Columbo. Yeah. And then is like, okay, I'll have the drink now and puts the gun away. Yeah. So then we cut to this mission that night. The least believable part of this whole movie is that nobody sees this boat coming. <laughs> This like giant sailboat just cruising up because there's there's a dock where a bunch of Christatos's men because that's all true by the way everything Columbo said is true Columbo is a criminal but Christatos absolutely is also a criminal and is the one pulling all the strings there's a dock with a bunch of his men loading stuff onto a boat and <laughs> Columbo's boat which is much larger it's like it's nighttime but it's not that dark <laughs> just slides up and it's not until they're right on top of them that one one of Christatos's men is like hey boat (laughs) (laughs) and so there's this huge fight scene that is pretty cool there's just lots of fighting it's you know two little armies against one another basically i'd say a couple dozen men on each side Mm -hmm. and there's what look like giant rolls of paper but are actually drums full of was it liquid opium liquid opium yeah they do a thing where they like shoot the ropes off the drums and make a cascade going to like roll over a bunch of dudes there's a couple sea mines that the the dove sets a detonator up on one of them at the end of the scene the the whole thing blows up the dove gets away bond chases after him on foot so it's this really cool sequence of like there's these tiny roads like single lane roads that are all like again all switchback and labyrinthine and confusing and so he's hauling ass in his car but bond is able to like on foot catch up with him at multiple points culminating in him driving directly at bond who shoots him through the windshield in the arm his car like swings to the side and is teetering on the edge of a cliff 
And they, they talked on the DVD a lot about how they wanted to play this. They went back and forth a lot on like, what does Roger Moore's Bond do in this situation, right? Because he, mm-hmm. he walks up, he throws him the lapel pin of the dove and the car starts to move a little bit just that little teeny bit of weight from the like gram of the pin is enough to start moving the car a little bit and then bond is like that's for you know luigi and then just kicks the car yeah and tumbles off and Locke is dead and they and they talked about you know do we do it that it's just the pins enough to push him off you know like this is bond murdering someone who is not a direct threat to bond's life in this moment mm-hmm. you know so like how do we do that and i like how they played this me too if it had been either of the last two movies the the pin being enough to knock the car off would have played better yeah just with the tone of those two films yeah and then they just you know you just put in a slide whistle it's hilarious <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> i mean i i think you can play it without the slide whistle but you you know what i mean yeah. right like there's the comedy aspect of like that little bit of weight is enough to do it and they they tease you with that in this one but then it's like full-blown cold-blooded no nope, kicks the car to seal the deal which is a lot it's more of like a Connery move. Mm-hmm. That's one of those things that I could see Connery doing in any of these instances. It's dark for Moore's Bond. I, I think that's basically, I would say that's probably the darkest this movie gets. But in terms of being like darker and more grounded, it feels much more in keeping with the tone of this film. But I do like that they tease it when he throws the pin and that that causes the car to tip a little more. It still maintains the a hint of the levity aspect. The comedy murder. Yeah. So this is enough convincing for Bond that Christatos is indeed the bad guy. We cut from there to underwater shots of this temple, of this amazing like Greek-era underwater temple that sank or was flooded or something. It's a little unclear how it's like this intact underwater, but... Eh. It's the lost city of Atlantis. <laughs> it's not. It's just a temple. Yeah. Melina is underwater doing archaeology work on it because she wants to continue her father's work, unaware that that's not actually what her father's work was, at least not at the end. I mean, her father did do a lot of legitimate archaeology, but that's not why he was there. So she's like, yeah, I'm just doing this. So she's got this giant vacuum and she's vacuuming sand off this amazing mosaic. It's an awesome thing. Not as impressive to me. This actually blows my mind because I was completely fooled by it. Carol Bouquet had a sinus problem and couldn't be filmed underwater. Really? And so all of the shots of her and Bond where it's obviously her are not underwater. They are on a soundstage recorded in slow motion with fans on their hair. Really? And bubbles added in post. Wow. I have never questioned it. Yeah, that's really... Like, looking at it in still frame, I can see it, but... If you had told me those shots were underwater, I would have believed you. Yeah, it's it, it's very well done and, and edited in with shots that obviously are underwater with stunt performers. And it's just like, wow, that's very impressive. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So she's there. Bond swims over and is like, hi, I've come to talk to you <laughs> underwater. And she's like, yeah, OK, cool. One second. Let me just. And she takes off her breathing apparatus and bond's like what are you doing she just puts it down and then they head up to the boat she can hold her breath long enough to it's not very deep she can hold her breath long enough to get from there up to the boat it's unclear why she has done that in fact i don't think it's ever clear why she did that even though it does become very relevant later yeah it's not explained my assumption was just that like i'm coming right back down why take it up i can just reconvene with it when i'm back down here i guess it's heavy i don't want to carry it up sure 
Yeah. All right. As I say, my my assumption, this is not me like having a clear answer. Yeah. So now they're back on the boat and Bond's like, look, cards on the table. Here's what your dad was doing. Can you tell me anything about where they were or what they were doing or where this boat might be? And she goes into his safe and they get the plans out and they find out where they were looking. And they're like, "Okay, we need to go. Luckily, Melina's got a submarine. She's (laughs) very well handled for gear. They get on board this little submersible and they go to the coordinates when they get close enough. They see it on radar and there it is, the wreck of the St. George's. So they set the submarine down on the seafloor and they kit up with scuba gear and go outside and go into the wreck of the St. George's. A brief cutaway to another boat, Christatos's boat, as they go, oh, hey, we have a signal because they are, they're above it. Like they've found the boat, yeah. but they can't get the ATAC unit out of it. We don't know that yet, but they're like, hey, there's something else down there. And so Christatos is like, go check that out. So Bond and Molina go on board. They go through the hole in the side of the hull that was caused by the enormous naval mine. There's a like grim sequence of them going through that amazing set from the beginning of the movie, now flooded full of dead bodies. Yep. It's it's spooky. It's haunting, yeah. They're they're communicating a little bit through like a radio. Yeah, they're using deep sea diving gear at this point, so they have helmets on as opposed to just like rebreathers in. Yeah. So they head in and we see the ATAC machine with the poor guy still handcuffed to it. And Bond mentions that it's obvious that they couldn't do the self-destruct thing. So the first thing he does is disarm the charge that would have been the self-destruct. And he sort of sets that aside. And then we get this cutaway to a POV shot of something moving through the ship. It's a very horror movie shot it's quite yeah. cool and there's some subtle illusions eh, let's not say subtle there's some illusions to the jaws theme <laughs> in the music yeah bond gets out his gear he has instructions on a little laminated card for how to disarm the thing and how to safely remove the atac unit from the console which they do so then he is able to get that out of there and just before they're able to leave a man in this amazing like deep dive suit that we saw that Cristados had earlier or at least had access to bursts through the the door it's quite freaky it's uh you know like a it's like a much more modern take on the big daddy from bioshock right like it's that well yeah like it's it's a deep sea diving or an atmospheric diving suit or whatever they're called like one of the the hard shell big suits i realized that saying a modern take on the big daddy is a silly frame (laughs) of reference when the big daddy was a sort of a retro take on a modern diving suit but I'm, i'm trying to give a frame of reference here anyway it's got these big scary claws and it's real strong and so there's this fight where they're trying to fight this enormous thing underwater and it's like ripping holes in hoses and stuff and trying to grab the attack bond grabs the charge from the self-destruct unit that has a magnet on it arms it for something ridiculous like 20 seconds don't worry about time time is meaningless (laughs) with the magnet sticks it to the back of this this suit and the guy inside the suit is like what is that? That's bad. And he sort of like starts trying to worm his way around to knock the thing off. Bond sends Melina out, goes back in to grab the ATAC from the thing. The thing pushes a pins Bond under a piece of furniture. And eventually Bond is able to grab the ATAC, squeeze back out of this thing and get out of the room before the poor man in the diving suit just explodes. And explode he does. There's some shots in there of what are clearly two dummies dressed like Bond and Melina as they escape the thing. And it shows them like... (laughs) just barely escaping but definitely like definitely not like those dummies got absolutely destroyed (laughs) they sure did but the movie's like uh they get away yeah so a a brief google search indicates to me the diving suit is potentially a gym diving suit 
a gym atmospheric diving suit. Is gym an initialism for anything? Probably, because it's all caps. J-I-M. It stands for Jim Invented Me. Of course it does. I don't know. That's my guess. Oh, okay. You had me fooled. I fully believed you. Oh my God. I was just, I was full of crap. What does it stand for? I'm, well, I'm trying to see if I can find that now, but it doesn't, doesn't look like there's, there's no information. Ah, the gym suit is an atmospheric diving suit designed to maintain interior pressure of one atmosphere despite exterior pressures. There does not appear to be any indication on this page that I can see as to why it is named a gym suit. But it does note the gym suit is perhaps best known to the general public for its appearance in the James Bond film For Your Eyes Only. Although, <laughs> this was my point of reference for the this suit, although it played a larger role in the 1989 sci-fi horror film Deep Star Six. Oh my god, Deep Star Six. Wow. The, the, the suit appeared on the cover of Deep Star Six for the iconic scene in the movie where they haul it up from the seafloor and the entire bottom half of it has been bitten off by some enormous sea creature and the poor schmuck inside is no longer there so it, it was named by the way the name jim the gym suit was named after a guy named jim <laughs> sweet all right it's named after a diver that tested a previous suit for the company that made the gym suit how <laughs> in the weeds can we get on bond trivia now the bad guys also have a submersible <laughs> And he appears and starts hacking Melina's submarine apart. But Melina's submarine is bigger and stronger and places the smaller submarine in the hole in the ship and like pins it there. And they get away. There's some shots of hauling the boat back up onto the deck of Melina's ship. But we carefully don't see the faces of any of her crew. Now, most of the crew she sent away. Yeah, she said she was only going to keep two additional crew on board. Yeah, it was going to be Bond, her, and then the first mate and one other guy to help them launch the Neptune because she didn't want to risk anyone else, you know, knowing about it, getting in trouble, whatever. And as Bond and Melina get out of the Neptune submarine, we see that, in fact, Christatos and his men have taken over Melina's boat and they say that the crew that she left behind she says where are they and he just says you will be joining them shortly because <laughs> Kriegler is there as well in fact the guy who takes the ATAC machine away from Bond is the same guy that was driving his car back from the casino ah. which is how Christados knew to fall anyway right yes that makes sense okay it's not really heavily featured but it is the same guy so yeah Christados is there and he's like yeah I got this thing and figure sell it to the Russians get a bunch of money there's a brief scene with Kriegler being like, great, the ATAC, thanks, I'll take that. And Christados is like, no, uh, no, <laughs> you don't get to just take it and peace out. I will hand it over when I get my money from your boss. And Kriegler's like, okay, but I don't trust you. And Christados is like, cool, that makes two of us. I don't care. <laughs> Kriegler is then like, all right, so where are we going? We're meeting your boss. Where are we going? Christatos says we will take the ATAC to St. Cyril's and that will be our meeting place. Mm -hmm. We then cut outside the boat where Molina and Bond have been roped together with their hands tied, are currently standing on the bow of their ship. And Christatos says, leave their legs unbound. It'll make better bait for the sharks. And it turns out that the plan here is that they are going to drag them behind the ship. They've run a line out to a little buoy that runs at surface level. Bond and Molina are tied to a rope that will be running behind that and they're gonna rake them over a coral 
You want to talk about scenes that have stuck with me, despite my complete inability to remember this movie. This is another one of those scenes that I would have told you was in basically any other water themed Bond movie than this one. I thought this was in Thunderball. I thought everything was in Thunderball. But anyhow, this whole scene just makes my skin crawl. (laughs) Yeah, man. A, being dragged behind a boat at high speed so that you can barely breathe. That's bad. That doesn't sound like a fun time. Having that happen over a coral where it's lacerating your back to the extent that like Bond is bleeding profusely into the water. That just, ugh, that squicks me out something fierce. But that's what happens. (laughs) They drag them behind the boat and Bond gets right, Bond sort of like maneuvers himself so he's back down underwater to sort of like spare Melina. Just gets absolutely shredded by coral. They drag them and then Cristados is like, all right, go again. And they turn around. Bond takes this moment to swim to the bottom and cut his ropes that are binding his hands against a coral at the bottom before getting pulled up for another run. So they take another run, and on the second run, he goes back down again when they stop and manages to wrap the rope around a giant like rock formation underwater holding his breath and like pulling against the rope to try and prevent it from dragging him and lo and behold the ship goes for another pass stretches the rope out to the point that like it starts to tense up and it breaks right where the buoy is the buoy rockets out of the sea creaming one of the deckhands on the boat knocking him into the sea i believe he gets eaten by sharks now christados doesn't own these sharks he doesn't control these sharks they're not in a tank that is his do we count this as a bond villain that has sharks i'm gonna say yes because it is the machinations of a bond villain leading to someone being attacked by sharks i don't know there's gonna be a shark in license to kill is that a bond villain that has sharks hmm yeah fair enough But I would still consider that shark-based weaponry in the same way I would consider this to be shark-based weaponry. Shark-based attempted murder? Yeah. Well, I guess in this case it's shark-based murder, but in most cases, well, it's still shark-based murder. It's just never the person they're trying to murder. (laughs) Nature finds a way. Uh, (laughs) And Bond finds a way to use coral to cut his bonds. Well, that wasn't meant to be a Bond bond (laughs) joke. They free themselves and they swim down to where Melina had previously ditched the scuba tank and they're able to breathe underwater for several minutes until Cristados is eventually like, okay, I guess the sharks have them. No worries. Because the thing, the the rope comes up and it's torn apart, but they don't see them. They don't see them surface. And so he's like, okay, cool. Well then, they're shark food now. Let's, let's, let's get out of here. And they... They pop up and see Cristados' boat leaving and are like, yeah, we're definitely at a safe distance to start climbing this really visible ladder on the outside of our boat. (laughs) But I mean, they get away with it. It's dramatic. Yeah. So inside, they're sitting there and they're like, well, now we have no idea where they're going. Max the parrot goes, St. Cyril's. And they're like, aha, St. Cyril's. Perfect. So then we cut to this church of St. Cyril's somewhere in, I don't know, it looks like Portugal? Greece? No, there's Cyrillic. This is somewhere in Greece. The scene further puts me in mind of the wedding scene from OHMSS, which is why I mentioned it. Yes. Because it looks like a wedding has just happened. So Bond goes into the church, lets himself into the back where there's a confessional and he sits down and opens the thing and there's a man in a beard there and he says, forgive me, father, for I have sinned. And the man in the beard takes off the beard in his cue and he says, I think that's putting it mildly 007. So since when is Q a field agent in situations where he He's not actively dispersing gear. It's weird, right? Yeah. So it was meant to be M. That doesn't make any more sense, but it was meant to be M. 
meeting with Bond to give him information on searching down the St. Cyril's lead. Right. And they just wanted to use a familiar face. Yeah. Like, it's funny. It's cute. Yeah, but you're right. It is weird that it's cute. Anyway, so he's like, look, there's like 600 places called St. Cyril's across Europe. How how do we know which one it's supposed to be? And I don't know exactly how they decide which one they think it's supposed to be, but we cut to Bond and Columbo and Molina and a bunch of Columbo's men disguised as monks walking through the mountains. We see just this amazing shot of a monastery mm-hmm. on the top of this column of rock. In the movie, it's in the northern mountains of Greece, and that is also where it is in real life. It is in the... I was just double-checking. Sorry. It's the Holy Trinity Monastery, northeast of Kalambaka. It forms part of 24 monasteries originally built at Meteora, and one of the oldest still existing of the Meteora monasteries. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. What an incredible location. The monastery was built in the 14th and 15th centuries and is on the UNESCO World Heritage List. And with good reason. Yeah. At the time, apparently the monks who lived there had said that they were cool with the filming, or at least someone gave that impression, and then they decided that they weren't, and so they put tarps and sheets and stuff out their windows and across their roofs so that it looked bad and that they couldn't get good shots of it and it ended up leading to this whole like local bureaucracy thing of like, but who actually owns this building? kind of thing and it's it's very strange it eventually ended up that they were able to film the shots they needed and they sorted out the rest of it with like matte paintings and most of the interiors or sets and like anytime that they're they're actually filming walking around in or near the monastery they're on a set that they built on a different mountain nearby (laughs) because they have like they still have these what look like location shots with these amazing views out over out all the mountains but it's not actually the one that they have the exterior of So Columbo, like it's nothing, is like, okay, so, you know, you just got to climb up that side of it. And then uh, when you get to the top, you can lower the basket for the rest of us. And Bond with a little bit of climbing rope is like, okie doke, and off he goes. And inside we see the ATAC and Kriegler and Christados and his henchmen sitting around waiting for whoever it is who's going to show up to show up. I love the shot of the ATAC. Just like sitting in like a spotlight. Sitting on a table. Yeah, sitting on a table illuminated by light through a stained glass window on the roof. Like on the It looks positively angelic in its framing. Yeah. It's hilarious. It's like this. This is the MacGuffin. Yes. Look upon. <laughs> It's a very extended sequence of Bond climbing up. But oh, right. Not before we get a little exchange with Christatos and Bibi. She's there. Bibi and her coach are there. And Christatos is like, so anyway, when we're done, when our friend shows up, then we're going to be heading. to." I don't remember where he says, but he's like, we're going to be heading to this place. And she's like, I can't train to be a skater there. And he's like, well, that's what we're doing. Yeah, it's somewhere warm. Where is it? Because he's like, think of all the solo ice time you'll have. It's Cuba. Oh, Cuba. Thank you. Yes. They're going to live in Cuba. And she's like, how am I going to train to skate in Cuba? And he's like, well, think of all the private training you'll be able to do. You'll have your own ice rink. She basically accuses him of only wanting to get in her pants. Yes. Which he has not actually shown any outward proclivity toward, but we don't know everything that's happened between them. Maybe she's totally correct to feel that way. Yeah. He's incensed at this and storms out of the room. Her coach is like, you shouldn't have said that. And BB says, I hate this guy. We should leave. And her coach goes, great. Awesome. I'm on board. Let's do that. So God, 
if we describe beat by beat the tension of the scene of Bond climbing the cliffs, we'll be here for another three hours. Yeah, let's not do that. It's and, and let's not do like we did for the when we said we wouldn't describe the beat by beat of the, <laughs> the boat, boat chase. chase and live and let die and then do yes. that. And then have Matt roast us in the uh, the commentary, <laughs> yeah. the image commentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bond climbs the side of the mountain. He lays out rope along the way. As he gets to the top, he startles a bird. The bird alerts a guard who comes over and sees only the bird. And we think the guard has decided that nothing is there. So Bond continues to climb. And just as he's about to crest climbing the mountain, the guard walks over and kicks him in the face. That causes him to fall. He is now hanging from the cliff face by his rope, which is attached via the pitons. He fashions, uses his shoelace to fashion a way to start climbing back up the rope. The stuntman, by the way, who did the big descension fall, which is very dangerous, yeah. was Rick Sylvester, who did the base jumping from The Spy Who Loved Me. And he had to go to the visual effects department. Well, not just the visual effects, but he basically went to the production department and was like, uh, can you help me not die <laughs> when i get to the bottom of this rope because <laughs> that's gonna be this isn't bungee jumping this is a rope i'm gonna stop yeah <laughs> at the bottom of that and they did a thing where it's like it slowed but still looked really brutal yeah it looks incredible yeah so anyhow bond is now sort of like climbing the rope that he's dangling from as the guard starts knocking the pitons out of the rock face causing him to drop over and over again but he manages to get to the top just before the last piton breaks loose and he hurls the, the guard off the cliff and the guard falls for a very long we have another great long fall <laughs> of a dump like what is clearly a dummy yeah but you know how much i love those when he lands melina is there and she runs over and is like oh James and then they turn him over and somehow he's still identifiable as not James Bond James climbs to the top as the the piton is shaking loose but he he survives and gets to the top there we have gone beat by beat through everything that happens in the scene but we've done it at turbo speed I hope you kept up James climbed the mountain killed a guard <laughs> and there's an incredible falling stunt along the way yeah he goes inside the building that's the only other way to get inside, which is basically lowering hot air balloon basket down on a winch. And he does that while trying to hide from the various guards that are wandering around the place. Columbo, Molina, and one of Columbo's men come up. There's a brief scuffle with the guard who almost spots Bond as they send the basket back down for the other of Columbo's men. We see BB and her coach packing to leave. Christados is getting more and more agitated that their buyer still isn't there. And he's getting really mm -hmm. agitated with Kriegler in particular. But then we hear a helicopter in the distance and we see the helicopter and then we go inside the helicopter and we see that it's General Gogol. <laughs> I'm kind of amazed he's doing this on his own. In person, right? Isn't that weird? Yeah. I guess I just wanted to get Walter Cattell in one of the movies again. Yeah. So there's a amusing bit where Melina is tending to the wounds because it was her wound. She had the guy with a crossbow of the guard who almost rumbled them, who they've you know, like bound and gagged, but she's like tending to his wound and he's still like screaming through his gag or whatever. And she's like, just be quiet. Okay. Just, you know, chill out. And Columbo's like, okay, okay. All right, everyone, let's move. Melina, you go ahead. And Melina leaves. And then Columbo's like, by the way, sorry about this. Just clocks the guy with his pistol. So that he stops screaming. <laughs> They're about to sneak inside and it's Ms. Brink, the coach. And she tells Bond, look, we're, we're going to leave. BB and I are out of here. Help you. You have to help us escape now. And he's like, oh, God, now I do have to do that. OK, where's Cristados? And she's like, OK, great. Come with me. I'll show you. And so she leads them around to 
where Christados is hiding. Unfortunately, this delays her, so Bibi just ends up heading right to where Christados is, being like, what have you done with Ms. Brink? Where is she? Where's my coach? Because she thinks that Christados has done something to her. But she is leading Columbo and Bond and everyone to the barracks, basically, where they kidnap all of Christados' sleeping guards. It's like, I guess it's a... Not quite a shift change. So there's some cool bits of them sneaking around the place, taking out what guards remain as Goggle's helicopter gets closer and closer. There's some more fighting that ends up with Bond and a goon going through some stained glass and down into the room with Christatos, BB, and Kriegler. So Bond and Kriegler get to have a fight. Hey, Kriegler, is this movie's uh, guy that won't be hurt? Yes. Yes, he is. Yeah, incredibly strong. Yeah, the highlight of the Kriegler fight is he picks up this big, like, candlestick, like this wrought iron six-foot tall candlestick that for whatever reason is like arrayed with spikes along the top and he uses that as a weapon against bond and like stabs it into the the wood fixtures around that's a lot of fun i like that part of the fight yeah it is good it looks very deadly and not not as deadly as bond managing to yeet kriegler out of a window hey another dummy fall In the ensuing chaos, Christados has made off with the ATAC because he can hear the helicopter going. So he's going to try and and deliver it to General Gogol. Columbo manages to catch up with him just as he's headed to the the helicopter launch pad. And Christados and Columbo have a a fight on this stone staircase. Christados manages to sort of like yeet the ATAC up onto the helicopter pad and knock Columbo down the stairs and sort of like scrabbles up to go grab the ATAC again. And just as he's about to do that, Bond arrives on scene and grabs the ATAC, pulls it away from him, basically wins the day. And Christados is like, well, General Gogol's here. What are you going to do? And Columbo from over at the stairs throws a knife at him, knifes him in the back. So Christados dies. Columbo collapses down behind the, the staircase just in time for Gogol to walk up to Bond with a he- like a heavily armed henchman and just be like, I'll take that. So Bond looks looks at him, looks at the henchman, looks at the ATAC and proceeds to yeet it off the edge, send it sailing. And we get this great slow-mo shot of it like cracking down on a rock and just exploding. Just into dust. Yeah, like just tiny bits. And I love that he throws it and Gogol's henchman lines up to shoot Bond and Gogol's like, wait, 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 because Gogol has shown himself to not be an asshole. The ATAC flies off and just disintegrates and then Gogol sends the heavy back to the helicopter. And then Bond is like, there, detente, comrade. You don't have it and I don't have it. And Gogol just makes this, he just smiles and laughs and makes this arm gesture of like, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, this effing guy. Yeah. Look at this guy. I can't be mad at this guy. Ah, you scamp. Yeah. And, and heads back to the helicopter. I think the implication of like telling the heavy not to shoot him is like if the Russians kill the British agent in this context, that potentially escalates tensions. Oh, yeah, for sure. And this is sort of like an off the book op for him anyhow, mm-hmm. because he's trying to buy it to bring back to Russia. So like if the thing is destroyed and they don't need to kill him to get it because nobody has it, then... The day is lost. We've been outplayed. Yeah. There's a brief little sort of wrap up thing of BB and Miss Brink tending to Columbo's wounds and Bond is like, oh, it looks like BB has a new sponsor. And so we just sort of assume that they all work out fine. (laughs) Right. And then we go back to Bond and Melina making out on her boat. And then we cut to Q, who is arranging to radio in to Bond after great success. And why they keep doing this is beyond me. (laughs) 
we also sorry on the way to this we also get another title drop oh yes because as melina is disrobing she is like for your eyes only darling right so q and frederick gray and bill tanner are there and they said that they've also piped the call directly to the prime minister (laughs) bond gets a phone call on his watch takes his watch off and puts it in Max the Paris food dish. And then we cut to number 10 Downing Street, where Margaret Thatcher, (laughs) played by Janet Brown, known Margaret Thatcher impersonator, answers the phone and it's Bill Tanner. And he's like, it's uh, Agent 007 here for you, Mom. And she's like, oh, lovely, put him on. And, you know, then Max goes, hello. And she's like, oh, yes, hello. Hello, how are you? What wonderful job on the, the spy stuff that you did. Give us a kiss. Oh, why, Mr. Bond. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Frederick Gray and Q and Bill Tanner all looking horrified. John Wells, uh, another English comedian, comes in playing Margaret Thatcher's husband, Dennis, looking like a complete idiot. <laughs> so I'm not totally up to speed on the 1981 era british opinions of margaret thatcher and her husband but i'm taking it from this scene that they weren't particularly fond no dennis is such a putz in this scene like he's being played really like margaret thatcher sort of neither here nor there she's being obviously caricatured but dennis walks in looking completely vacant and reaches for the dinner that she's been making and she's like not now dennis and like slaps his eye his hand away and he looks sort of like heartbroken but like he doesn't know what to do and just sort of looks around i've only looked into it on a very surface level but i I will defer to comedian Frankie Boyle, who said of the price tag for Margaret Thatcher's funeral, which was three million taxpayer dollars. He said, for three million dollars, you could give everyone in Scotland a shovel and we could dig a hole so deep we could have handed her over to Satan in person. (laughs) Wow. A lot of Thatcher's policies were not kind to Scotland. Uh, Right. Yeah. So she died in 2013. Yeah. I like what was opinion of her in 1981? It varied depending on who you were, I guess. I guess, yeah. Anyway, it's just, it's interesting to me to see a series that is as kind of like Hail Britannia, we are the world-spanning, just Empire of the West kind of imperialist propaganda, so to speak, be like Lampoon quite this hard. Mm -hmm. But who knows? It predates me, so I can't speak authoritatively on it. But this doesn't seem like a very, like, fond parody here. No. Those of you listening needn't give us a lesson in the comments unless you are desperately inclined. I can't stop you, but I, I, (laughs) you really needn't do it. Uh, Then Max takes the watch, Max the parrot takes the watch and throws it in the water. And then we get the end credits as Bond and Melina swim around, presumably nude, in the ocean near the boat. Just having the whole end credits be like these two swimming around in silhouette underwater is actually really cool. Yeah, I like it. The end credits on this movie are really good. And that is For Your Eyes Only. It sure is. Yeah. So what'd you think? I really enjoyed it for something that had completely escaped my memory so much until we started talking about it at the end of the last episode. I didn't really know what to expect. And it really surprised me. I mean, I wasn't expecting such a departure slash course correction from Moonraker. And it was it was really good. Yeah, this movie mostly ruled. We had the spy stuff. We had the gadgets. We had the stunts like it's it's all the things you kind of want from James Bond. It, It was funny and charming without being completely ridiculous everyone did a great job in their roles it was potentially 
BB's weird obsession with Bond notwithstanding, there was nothing grotesquely problematic that leapt out. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was pretty great, actually. Yeah, I'm with you. I think this one rocks unironically. I don't know why I can never remember it other than the fact that it bears similarity to other movies, but it's good. I like it. It's a darn solid Bond movie that I would speak favorably of to others and have now done for three hours and 21 minutes and 57 seconds. Good Lord. So how do we think the pre-title sequence stacks up? The pre-title for this is like weird continuity to OHMSS and finally killing not Blofeld. Yeah, I am going to rate it pretty low, probably. Yeah. My reasoning for that is that the stunts are awesome. The dude climbing on the outside of the helicopter to get from the back to the front is awesome. Like that stunt rocks. That is the kind of stunt you would see Tom Cruise do in a Mission Impossible movie, which we've said before. But like, unfortunately, the whole scene is so nothing as a scene that when we were describing it at the beginning of this episode, we both agreed we didn't need to talk about what happens in it. <laughs> <laughs> because it goes on forever yeah and it is a simple scene bond gets trapped in a helicopter he takes the helicopter over he uses the helicopter to kill blofeld the end it has nothing to do with the movie at all it's a weird callback to ohmss it has one really sick awesome stunt and the rest of it is completely neither here nor there yeah i'm gonna put this one just under thunderball yeah for me and above diamonds are forever thunderball was the fist fight with bouvar and the jetpack oh that's right that was cooler than this and diamonds are forever was bond tours around the world punching people oh and then and then fighting blofeld in the science cave that's right <laughs> and i i think i liked this better yeah it's definitely better than diamonds i'm gonna put it in the same place sounds good what do you feel about the song i kind of like the song I feel like it needed a little bit more like oomph, but I don't it's not bad. No, I think it's good. I actually think I like it better than my placement on the list will give it credit for. Mm. I, I like I think the song is good. I think I think the track itself is particularly musically. I think it's like it has some I said it earlier. It has some good body to it, even if the vocals are a little bit light. The tune is good. I can I can hum along with it. The problem is, is it Diamonds Are Forever? Nope. Nope. Is it better than Thunderball? Mm, nope. Is it considering on my list, I have Thunderball ahead of you only live twice. Is it better than you only live twice? Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> so that sort of like limits my placement here. The spy who loved me was, why can I not think of the name of the song? We just did this one. Nobody does it better. Nobody does it better. It's definitely better than nobody does it better. So it goes between you only live twice and above or sorry, under you only live twice and above nobody does it better for me. So on my list, it's only one place higher than that. I'm giving Sheena Easton a Shirley Bassey bookend, putting it between Diamonds Are Forever and Moonraker. Fair enough. Because I have Moonraker way higher on my list than you do on yours. So yeah, it, it, yeah, it all yeah. sort of comes out. It's, it averages to almost the same opinion of the song. Yeah. Uh, now, the movie as a whole. This is going to be tough. Right? So actually, for me, it's not i think i've i just looking at my list and doing sort of you know like you just did the like is it better than this is it worse than this i think i've already figured out where it is okay this is so far this is number five okay so that's just behind goldfinger and ahead of man with the golden gun yeah and i i do like man with the golden gun but this is actually just like a better constructed movie it's more spy stuff it's interesting things happening with the plot yeah my top five right now is live and let die ohmss from russia with love goldfinger and for your eyes only which i would not have called yeah so the funny thing is i think it might even go in the same place for me 
Except, of, of course, our lists have now diverged enough that puts it like completely in a different set of movies for me. <laughs> right. You've got From Russia With Love, OHMSS, The Spy Who Loved Me, Live and Let Die, and this? Yeah, the, where I'm actually waffling is whether I like this more or less than Live and Let Die. That's fair. Like, it could go after The Spy Who Loved Me, which I just, I love that movie, despite myself. Live and Let Die, which is really good. Dr. No, which I still think slaps, it's definitely above Moonraker. I think it goes below Live and Let Die for me. Just I, like I think I, I am obligated to dock at a point for its inability to stick with me for any length of time. And so I think it goes in the same place at number five. Well, there we are. Yeah. What was your most Bond moment? Uh, definitely. I'll buy you some ice cream. All right. Good. All right. We're, we're on the same page. Yeah. No, that was that was very strong. Well, that's all she wrote. Yeah. So next time we are looking at James Bond returning in Octopussy. So are we? Oh, right. We have a decision to make. Because Never Say Never Again and Octopussy came out in the same year. They surely did. I could go for a, a break from Roger Moore just to see what the hell happened in Never Say Never Again, which I'm confident I have never seen. <laughs> I'm actually just quickly looking for the release dates. Never Say Never Again came out in October, so probably later than Octopussy, which came out in June. So if we go by firm release dates, Octopussy would be next. All right. I, I will leave it up to you. We we diverged from that when it came to Casino Royale. So Okay, then let's say I wanna I wanna be able to tell people now so they know for those who are watching along so they know what to watch. So let's say that we're gonna do Never Say Never Again next episode. Sounds good. This seems I agree with you. This seems like a good place to take a break from Roger Moore and divert. That's what we will watch next. Great. So until then, I've been Graham Stark and I want to thank Matt Wiggins for joining me for these because it's always a blast. Yes. Thank you so much. Shout outs to Featherweight for doing the art and for Matt Griffiths for the wonderful work on the video version and Heather for doing podcast admin for us. This show and everything we do is brought to you by you and your kind support of our Patreon at patreon.com slash loading ready run. Until next time. This podcast will return. Mm -hmm.